0: The VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly.
1: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It is Friday, December the 8th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing it to come on with an edition of the program this morning. So if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86-26. So an unexpectedly messy morning out through this morning, I suppose, with the weather radar out in Hollywood down. Kind of hard to predict what the snow belts will look like. Extremely dangerous and uh, messy conditions on the West Coast, Northern Peninsula, parts of Labrador. But even here in Metro, there's not a ton of snow down, but it is extremely slippery. Tons about collisions this morning heard of a pedestrian was struck by a sliding car so if you haven't made your way out the door yet to do whatever's on your agenda for the day be careful it is wicked slippery out there this morning and of course when you hear the traffic notes all the media outlets will talk about the ferry systems and marine Atlantic not sailing today it's not that long ago where marine Atlantic was a huge topic. You know, the clean fuel regulations that they delayed this year would, would have had an impact on the fares. I know they already have uh, pretty strong bookings, especially in the tourism season. But once you know, once upon a time, you know, say for instance when Jerry Byrne was a member of parliament, it was one of his favorite topics. And now all of a sudden, nobody seems to care a whole lot. I guess capacity issues mean that people are already choosing to travel via Marine Atlantic, but it is time to reopen it. You know, it would be still better if it was a lesser ticket price. So the whole issue regarding Marine Atlantic and the fair is the 65% uh, cost recovery model that comes from ticket sales alone. So it used to be the big story. Now nobody really talks about it. Very quick sports note before we get into your conversations this morning. On this date, 1987, Flyers goalie Ron Hextall became the first NHL goal to actually score a goal. Shot the puck into the uh, wide open Boston Bruins net, 5-2 victory at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. Goalies had been credited with goals in the past because they were the last player to touch the puck, say a rebound. It goes to the opposing forward, who tries to pass it back to the defenseman. Lousy pass, goes all the way down the ice and in the net. Credit for the goal, but Ronnie Hextall with his two-handed chop, his first goalie to score. All right, I want to say good morning and uh, happy trails to Gary Milley. Gary Milley is the executive director with Recreation Newfoundland and Labrador. He's had a career in recreation that spans some 40 or 45 years. He's hanging it up. Gary has been critically important in promoting uh, recreational activities here in the province, helping to establish policy. So whether or not you want to go to uh, recreationnl.com and pass along a happy trails, happy retirement, good luck uh, in your future, Gary, because he's been an important cog in the wheel in recreation in the province. So good morning, congratulations, good luck to Gary. Okay, so the NLTA and the teachers have indeed ratified accepted the terms in the collective bargaining. So there's a bunch to it, and now, of course, on the program this morning, the president of the NLTA is Trent Langdon. He's going to join us. There's a lot of things to discuss, including the contract. So there's some pretty important measures taken inside this particular contract. Of course, people will focus in on pay, 2% per year for four years. Pretty standard operations when it comes to the most recent negotiations with the unions and the province, but some other important spots here. So there's an additional day for report card prep. If anyone is married to or lives with a teacher, you know what report card season is like. Dreadful. Limit on scheduling, duration of meetings, improve benefits for teachers. This is important. Improve benefits for teachers working in isolated schools, including all the schools in Labrador. We hear the concerns repeatedly, year in and year out. And much like healthcare professionals, it's becoming harder and harder to recruit people to work in more remote, isolated parts of the country, not just this province. So new benefits. We'll dig in and see what they may indeed be. Easier access to accrued sick leave for substitute teachers. The substitute teacher world has been a problem for quite a long time. So we'll wonder whether or not that will help. And then there's a couple of new model and review committees that have been struck. But we'll dig into that with Trent Langdon this morning. And, of course, as you know, as repeat and faithful listeners to the program, I'm really genuinely concerned about the trend in math, reading, and science scores. Math in particular in this province, we have a huge issue. So we'll get into how the curriculum is devised and delivered and whether or not these numbers are a shock enough to the system. So go back to the drawing board to ensure we get it right. Because when compared to other countries, we're falling behind. Yes, it's fine to say that Canada remains in the top ten in the English-speaking world, but the competition out there is very real, and we are falling behind. So we'll take that on when we speak with Mr. Langdon this morning. Also, the NLTA, the NLESD, pardon me, is warning parents about the presence of these flavored tobacco pouches that have slipped through some of the regulatory issues and are now being seen and found on school grounds. So they're sold uh, under the brand name of Zonic. There, there's no restrictions for young people using them as well. So, of course, between the uh, English school district and the folks who are uh, working at the Alliance for the Control of Tobacco, they've got concerns. So keep your eyes peeled, mom and dad if and when your youngster is able to purchase this product and of course if they're caught using it on school because it is in contravention of the cannabis and smoke free policy they'll be dealt with accordingly so says administration so for moms and dads and caregivers and aunts and pops keep your eye peeled for that thing. On that front, whatever happened to the class action lawsuits that this province was talking about in suing the big tobacco companies? There have been rulings in the past to the tunes of billions of dollars All ten provinces, my understanding, including BC who launched their lawsuit back in 1998, which I think was the first one, but this province said that we were suing Big Tobacco. Of course, we had a big concern here with the prevalence of smoking in the province. The numbers have curved or waned somewhat, but whatever became of that lawsuit? You know, the story back in the day was when all ten provinces had finally filed a lawsuit, I don't even know if we actually filed it, but the thought was that there could be compensation coming to the tune of some $500 billion from Big Tobacco. They knew as early as the 1950s that cigarette smoke caused cancer, but of course they shielded it from us. And remember, even when I was a child, you'd watch shows like, I don't know, Marcus Welby, Welby M.D., and they're smoking in the hospital. You know, smoking on TV and smoking in work settings was all too common. The cigarette companies knew exactly what they were selling us, and consequently lawsuits were threatened, but I wonder what the status is of that one in this country or this province, pardon me. All right, changes coming by the end of the year regarding the number of hours that international students are allowed to work. During the pandemic, they lift all the restrictions because of labor shortages and what have you. But it seems like a strange tactic for the federal government to take here. So by the end of the year, they'll only be able to work 20 hours maximum. So for people who are already trying to juggle the balance between school and working and paying their bills and keeping their head above water, this sounds like a pretty counterintuitive move. So if you're an international student attending one of the post-secondary institutions here in this province, I would like to chime in because I've heard some of them speaking in different media stories. But if you're struggling today, you know, I would think it's a bravo. You're going to university and you're able to take on and uh, fulfill a full-time job and do well in school. That's a real feather in someone's cap. So now all of a sudden, given the cost of living issues that everyone is dealing with, including international students, now all of a sudden their hours are going to be restricted to 20 maximum. Okay. So this story is the epitome of if there's a will, there's a way. So the tents popped up across from the Confederation Building back in October. And now we're told that uh, Minister John Abbott, who's the minister responsible for transportation and infrastructure, He and the members of the task force actually met with the residents of Tent City yesterday. They had been there sporadically, individually over time, but the whole group, my understanding is, met with the residents yesterday. There was some talk of one of the residents actually joining the task force as a member. That did not happen. But now they're saying that they're going to have everyone who's living in these tents out of the tents by Christmas Eve. You know, I guess when the snow starts to fly and the conditions become quite dicey and dangerous for someone who's living outside, even if you are inside a canvas tent. So, how did it take this long to make these moves? Now, there's a bunch of people send me emails that are basically saying they couldn't care less. You know, people need to do what they need to do to find their own lodgings and to protect themselves and pave their own way. Fair enough. But, you know, the fact is, it's never going away in full. We're never going to eradicate in full homelessness, poverty, people living in precarious positions and lots in life, but apparently through whatever solutions they're considering at this moment in time, of which all are on the table apparently, and so they think and they say that they hope to have everyone out by Christmas Eve. So whether they talk about hotel rooms and or in shelters, you know, I know some of the emergency shelters are desperate places and are not safe and are not conducive to healthy living, but... Emergency shelters on the table, hotel rooms on the table, more intensive case management for the residents. Also talk about the other wraparound programs and services that are not working as intended. You know, some of the commentary says that are possibly not working as intended. Well, the fact of the matter is the policies are not working as intended. So all of a sudden, there is a will and now possibly a way to see this issue dealt with by Christmas Eve. So I guess good news, What, what took so long? All right, let's keep going. We knew that based on the most recent provincial budget, and there was $9 million earmarked for transition regarding the ground and air ambulance service, the province is now uh, putting out an RFP for a proponent that will design, manage, and operate a single integrated road and air ambulance service for the province. So there was three consultants brought in, and now I guess we've figured out exactly what the approach will be the hope to amalgamate some 60 different road ambulance services under one centralized service. People will be working for the provincial government. In the air, it's going to be managed by a private company. The medical staff working on the uh, aircraft will indeed be uh, public sector employees, but the system itself will be managed by a private company. I'm not entirely sure why. Now, one of the quotes, and this is not wrong, this is coming from the uh, Vice President of the Transformation Health Systems, that's Casey Chisholm. We really need a very integrated, modernized, air and road ambulance system that is designed, purpose-built, to meet the needs of the people of the province. Of course, that's absolutely true. But when we talk about the privatization creep, and that's a concern in many different corners, not just for union leaders and union members, but I think just conceptually. Now this is one of the key recommendations in the Health Accord, and it's a good thing that it's happening, but the big question will be, you know, between PhoneMed 811 and Teladoc and the Compass Group and many other entities that are now part of our publicly delivered healthcare system, the Air Ambulance will be under the authority of a private system. Now, you know, Jerry Earl. I think, is coming on the show a little later this morning. He says that this is a broken promise. It's a couple of strange things that I'm not entirely sure how and why these are the, this is the facts. So apparently the province was advised that they cannot buy a fleet of helicopters and aircraft. Not all the aircraft amongst the seven air ambulance outlets are actually designed for medical transportation, but that will be a private operator. Not everybody might indeed be concerned on that front with what people call the privatization creep, but it's happening, and we'll hear from Jerry Earle at some point this morning to get his thoughts on it. But we all knew it was coming, right? That was one of the real only news items that came out of the budget was the move towards a better, integrated, more seamless Uh, air and ground ambulance service. We had Rodney Goody from the Paramedics Association on yesterday. They've still got looming questions, so time is of the essence to get this done and get it done right. We don't know if it will mean more ambulances or fewer, more paramedics or fewer, what the model will look like. You can only imagine it's going to be your classic hub and spoke, but the RFP is going out to bring in a proponent for all the aforementioned tasks in this amalgamation. Let's talk about food. We know yesterday we were talking about the 14th version of the food or the grocery price forecast, and an additional $700 on the table for some families of four, and, of course, that's compromised of or composed of an adult man, woman, a teenage boy, and a preteen girl. So food costs are going to go up another $700 uh, next year. That group, four different universities that work on that forecast, they were pretty much bang on in 2023, so that's the bad news. Now we continue to hear from the CEOs of the big grocery chains in front of parliamentary committees talking about a variety of issues, stabilizing prices and what have you, and the long bandied about Grocery Code of Conduct. A couple of the big groups, they are not opposed to it all. They've actually been proposing this Code of Conduct for quite a long time. So like even Michael Medlin, the uh, head of Sobeys, they've actively been in support of implementation of Grocery Code of Conduct for a number of years. Galen Weston, poor old Galen, He's not in favor of it at all. Now, when government gets directly involved in the price of food, it hasn't uh, turned out very well for consumers over the years. It's just an unholy marriage that doesn't seem to work. Inside this code of conduct it's more about the relationship between the grocery retailer and their suppliers. Mr. Weston says that this is going to have the exact opposite uh, outcome of lowering prices. He suggests it's going to increase prices. Now, I don't know if there's anyone out there independent of some of these big grocery store executives that can really help us understand the implications of the grocery code of conduct, but it is a potential problem. Now, it's not only the retailer, and they'll talk about the fact that they make more money on things outside the grocery aisles, you know, financial services and clothes and medicine and and the like, but, you know... Can, if you're listening this morning and really understand this as a concept inside the world of big business, it would be great and helpful to me, and I will suggest to most listeners of the program, if you could help us walk through co- some of these items and clauses. So here's a couple that's in the news items itself. So there's a concern Mr. Weston talks about, contracts between retailers and their suppliers. So they're talking about different fees that are charged for stocking, listing, position, promotions, marketing costs on sellables and shrinkage that they have to throw away. Then they're talking about the issue regarding uh, whether or not the retailers are allowed to charge suppliers a fee when they reject an order because they can't fill the requested size of the order. That seems like some pretty whiny stuff to me coming from Galen Weston on that front. But government intervention... In the grocery store aisles and the price point for the things we need, even some of the necessities, maybe doesn't work out as intended. But anyway, how are we doing out there this morning, Dave? A couple of very quick ones before we get to you. So as uh, we anticipated, the federal government announced their regulatory framework on the oil and gas industry and the emissions cap. It's a little bit more modest than was initially articulated. The thought was that the government was going to impose a cap to uh, 2030 emissions of 42% below 2019 levels. Yesterday's announcement said 35 to 38%. Okay, the oil and gas sector represents 28% of Canada's emissions in total. So some of the producers are actually not opposed to this. Inside of this announcement also allows for the producers to produce 12% more than pre-pandemic levels. So it's not all doom and gloom. Production last year, all-time high, right? All-time high profits, all-time high revenues, and all-time high barrels produced. So the emissions controls. Of course, when the federal government took a couple of knocks in court regarding provincial jurisdiction and federal overreach and the plastics ban and what have you, there's a reason why this is a bit more modest. But here's what's also predictable. Nobody likes it. Right? So the provinces of Saskatchewan and uh, Alberta, notably, they think that there is a direct attack on the province, attack on their economy, attack on jobs, the potential to see hundreds of billions of dollars in capital investment go elsewhere. Remains to be seen. Investment in the oil sands last year, uh, once again, huge reinjection of money. The oil companies knew that this was coming. This has been on the table for a couple of years. But now that it's out there, again, even some of the folks inside the world of activism, climate activism, they say it's too little, too late. So again, when we talk about these big policy issues, nobody likes this. <laughs> I, but I suppose if you're trying to make friends or uh, satisfy everyone, you're destined to bring forward dreadful policy, regardless of what political party we're talking about. But the federal, uh, the federal regulatory framework is now out, and of course, Alberta, Saskatchewan. And I would imagine some concern in this province as well. But remember, we talked for years about electrifying the province's offshore production facilities. And now, of course, we're investigating the ability in the world of controlling uh, emissions to just simply inject the carbon into the depleted oil wells. So a lot on that particular issue. Uh, Good morning to everyone out in Portograve. It's a lovely community and this tradition, which is now 25 years old, of lighting the boats. I mean, the pictures are absolutely spectacular. It started back uh, by a fellow named Eric Lear. He hung some lights on his boat in the early 90s. Then the community really embraced it and in 1998 it became what it is today. They've already got the crab pot tree lit up and what have you. But congratulations to everyone who is decorating the boats because it is one of the great traditions in this province. And the, f- uh, the lights on the boats will be lit this evening. And maybe, just maybe, I'll have the opportunity to get up to Porto Basque before the Christmas season runs out. And, of course, as we fast track towards a very Christian, albeit highly commercialized, holiday and celebration of Christmas, Uh, Yesterday began the beginning of Hanukkah. There's a drive in menorah lighting again happening this year. That's been going on for quite a while. The menorah is in the Viking Building parking lot. The drive in event takes place this Sunday at 4pm. Hanukkah runs from yesterday the 7th to the 15th. And also, interestingly today, today is the Day of Awakening or or the Day of Enlightenment. It's Bodhi Day, celebrated by Buddhists across the country. So the story is, I think, some 2,600 years old, but Bodhi Day today. And here's the words from Buddha himself. My heart, thus knowing, thus seeing, was released from the fermentation of sensuality, released from the fermentation of becoming, released from the fermentation of ignorance. With release, there was knowledge. I discern that birth is ended, the holy life fulfilled, the task is done. There is nothing further for this world. Bodhi Day. If you celebrate it, happy Bodhi Day to you. All right, we're on Twitter or VSM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline.fiosm.com. Let's have a bang-up show. That means your participation is required. Do not go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin the program this morning. On line number one. sing morning to the president of NAPE. That's Jerry Earl. Jerry, you're on the air. Good
2: morning, Patty. to you and your listening audience.
1: Welcome to the program. Good morning to you.
2: Thanks, Patty, for the opportunity. i uh, honestly calling in... Uh In your preamble, you touched on the actions of the current government as they put in a request for proposals for the outright privatization of the area ambulance. So that's what we'd certainly like to have a conversation about, that and the continued creep of privatization in healthcare.
1: I'm not sure exactly when it began but I think you can trace it back to the finalization and the signing of NAFTA all of a sudden some of the big companies with long reach were able to participate in the public delivery of universal healthcare. now all of a sudden you know whether it be on place on the mainland where you can go and pay cash on the barrel some $25,000 get your knee or your hip replaced there's always been dentists and for instance I mean GPs or subcontractors for all intents and purposes but now some of the big line items like the Compass Group and Med and Teladoc and now private operator of the Air, Air, Air Ambulance Service. The employees will be public sector employees, but the management will be a private company. Your thoughts?
2: And you're absolutely correct, Patty. When you go back over the years, I've been, like i worked in healthcare, to healthcare, now obviously representing a significant number of healthcare workers, and what we do contractually obviously to protect the frontline workers, these are Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, but you're absolutely right. When you look back, what has happened in healthcare, the privatization creep and the outright privatization yesterday, we've had management of environmental services contracted out, management of food services contracted out, management of security contracted out. We've seen travel nurses being brought in who worked in public institutions. Sometimes we paid quadruple what Newfoundlanders and Labradorians were paid in this most recent Teladoc, $22 million for an American based company. Uh, even in this, on the road ambulance, the one thing I would say, we've lobbied for some time that the road ambulance system should be brought into the public realm. But when you look at it, we just recently consolidated the health care boards in Newfoundland Labrador and the Newfoundland Labrador Health Services, knowing uh, or hoping that the ambulance system is coming in, which it is, but apparently now they are not able to uh, actually manage the ambulance system that's coming in. So we're going to hire another private contractor to manage the ambulance system, and then, lo and behold, they make the right move to bring the privatized ambulance system into a unified ambulance system in the province. But on the flip side of that, they privatize the air ambulance system, which has been in place, uh, providing a critical service to Newfoundland, and Labrador, to remote parts of this province for a no- time. And they always ask, uh, or we always suggest to listen to frontline workers on two separate occasions, Patty. We've presented to the Department of Finance, we've presented to Accord NL. And we took frontline workers, because they're the ones that deliver the service, that know the services better than any bureaucrat, and I'd suggest better than any consultant. And they've made recommendations twice that would have actually saved the government of Newfoundland and Labrador money and brought in a much more efficient system. Unfortunately, it seems like when workers bring recommendations uh, forward, they're not listened to, but if a consultant or a business group brings them forward, uh, they tend to be listened to. So, again, frontline workers ignored, uh, frontline workers being privatized and told their jobs may be gone, Uh, and, again, another public service uh, on the chopping block. (laughs)
1: The you know the sentiment is that the private sector is more nimble and careful with money, more likely to hit de- uh, uh, projects on budget and on time and what have you, and that could be the case in some arenas. But if we just do some careful examples here, it'd be great to hear from Dr. Todd Young uh, out of Medicuro in the near future yes. after he gets a chance to sit down with the procurement team to see why uh, Medicuro came up short against Teladoc, but his bid three point five, uh, Teladoc eleven or pardon me yes eleven million so twenty two over two years and a, a possibility for a third year on the contract. Then you look at the Compass Group. There's no one can convince me that we couldn't do that type of management and service Absolutely. inside healthcare for less money than we're paying the Compass Group. Then you look at PhoneMed. It costs twice to call a PhoneMed to probably then get referred to a doctor, and the doctors get paid about half what we're doing on the phone with a private company. Now, we've had their leadership on, and they describe the cost and the overhead and what have you, but I think if you look at the examples in healthcare, we're probably paying more. Travel nurse is another great example. I mean, shoulder to shoulder on the floor, making probably twice, at least twice, what the other public sector RNs are making. So, you know, while your people are going to be quick to tell me the private sector is in better shape to do these types of offerings, it doesn't really sound like it or feel like it in healthcare.
2: Petty, absolutely true. When we keep a tipping information, uh, I know the Auditor General has gone and looked at the university and looked at some of this. I wish the Auditor General would look at some of this because they've done it in other provinces and if what we've data that we've collected clearly shows that it is not more cost-effective, it is not more nimble, and it does not provide better service. The very report that we presented on the air ambulance showed that, because even in the current system, they had to rely on an outside resource sometimes when the public sector air ambulances but the cost factor for 20% of the call volume back pre 221 it costs more than the 80% of the calls that our public air ambience done. Uh, given the comparison, again, this government and Newfoundland Air Resources can't even manage the number of long term care beds. I can look at a facility out the window of my office there where they have actually contracted long term care beds, and they actually have to provide the equipment to the private company, pay for the beds provide the actual equipment right down to a walker at a greater cost than if they would have actually had those beds in a public system. So when you add all this together, and it's not about the cost, and it's, it is certainly about providing service, the public system does deliver. The public system is efficient and effective if government properly staffed it and resourced it. Because look what happened with travel nurses. Look what it's costing Newfoundlanders and Labradorans, You just hit the nail on it. We're only seeing the cost that we're saying double the salary on what they're paying the person working side by side. But look at the profit volume that that company is getting. And actually, I just heard from some travel, some LPNs Newfoundland and Central Newfoundland that have been replaced by travel nurses. And guess what? The travel nurses are going to disappear during the holidays. And guess who's going to pick up the slack? Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, well, those that were brought in from the mainland are going to be flown out to spend time at the taxpayer's cost to spend time with their family. Uh, what this government and past government were allowed to happen in their healthcare is absolutely unacceptable. Uh, and I can tell you it's they've drawn a line to send, and we're going to draw a line. This is absolutely enough. Uh, the erosion that we've seen in healthcare, and I, I can't believe, uh, like executive council and government is over 800 bureaucrats. Uh, we've just amalgamated Newfoundland Labrador Health Service. I've seen no reduction in management, and we bring in all these private management companies. Patty, the listening audience, you and I are paying for all of this with our hard earned tax dollars. Uh, and it appears that neither government or the large executive team in Newfoundland can actually manage these systems. And again, in this RFP, we need a private company to manage an ambulance system. Yet we have Newfoundland, Labrador Health Services, Department of Health, and a government. They, it appears they can't manage anything.
1: Well, I'll add to it, we had three other private companies tell us what the RFP should look like. So there you go. <laughs>
2: Absolutely. Ge- Jerry, I appreciate
1: <laughs> the time this morning. Thanks for the call. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, another one before we get to the break. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Rob. You're on the air.
3: Good morning, Patty. Um, I'd just like to bring to light um, a great um, Newfoundlander uh, sports hero has uh, passed away, Uh, Amy Earl, who is, you know, a great dart player. Uh, She's represented the country, Um, Newfoundland, all around the world in her time, and um, she's passed away.
1: I had heard via email that that this had happened and it's a sad story and our condolences to our friends and family. What can you tell us about Amy?
3: Amy was a good friend of our family. Um she wasn't playing darts anymore. She used to play she played in our pool league. She was on my team and she was a great pool player too. Um she was just just a wonderful person, always bubbly, always had good spirits and it, it, she was just well loved by everybody.
1: Yeah, I mean, she started playing on the international stage and sometime in the mid-'80s, and I don't believe Amy Earl was very old either. I don't think she was 70.
3: No, she was, she was just getting around there. Um, but like I said, you know, she's in the Canadian Woman Darts Hall of Fame, and, you know, she's played internationally all around the world, representing Newfoundland, and proudly. And uh, she'll be missed.
1: I'm glad that you called about it this morning someone did indeed send me an email with an attachment about some of her international results I mean playing in uh, World Cup singles and the women's masters and so she's been out there for quite a long time so I, I appreciate you bringing it to our attention here on the air this morning and once again I'm sorry for your loss and our condolences to all of her friends and her family and her and her darting compatriots yeah thanks a lot Patty Thanks Rob take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Oh, you want me to take another one here, Dave? Okay, here we go. Line number five. Jeffrey, you're on the air.
4: Missing Harrington Drive, December 3rd. White and black, knotted fur, female cat. Broken tail, nine years old, very shy. Will not come when called. This cat will seek refuge in or under your patio or shed. Please check your shed. Maybe put some food out. Reward offered.
1: Thank you. This in the Harrington Drive area. Is that what you said, Jeffrey? Yes, sir. And is uh, the cat an outdoor cat as a rule or just got away?
4: Never, never been out before. Never. Nine years has not. It ran out chasing a a smaller kitten playing and uh, there was a storm on the go and we got one back but didn't get the other.
1: Okay, folks, uh, have a look under your patio and your sheds and what have you for this lost cat. Uh, Jeffrey, describe the the, the feline one more time.
4: It's a white and black, matted fur, female cat. Tail is broken on the very tip. It's very shy. It will not come when calls. It will seek refuge somewhere out of the weather.
1: Fingers crossed you get it back. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thank so much. You're welcome, sir. Take care and good luck. Okay, uh, let's go ahead and take that break. Don't go away.
0: Win your Christmas cash with a VOCM Cares for the Community 50-50 draw. Buy your tickets until December 16th at vocmcares.com.
1: Welcome back to the program. Uh, let's go line number two. Say so good morning to the NDP member for Lab West. That's Jordan Brown. Good morning, Jordan. You're on the air.
5: Good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me on. Happy to do it. Yeah, so uh, just, just following up from... Uh what uh, Jerry Earl just said from NAPE, uh, I, I I was absolutely shocked uh, uh, that reading what I read yesterday about uh, the Air Ambulance Service uh, going to be sold off into private hands. Um, you know, especially as a Labradorian someone who's dealt with the Air Ambulance in my, personally in my past, uh, I'm absolutely shocked that we're going to privatize such an important service that uh, Labradorians rely on so heavily.
1: Yeah, I guess we should be careful with exactly what we're talking about here. Everyone working as, insofar as the medical staff, they will be public sector employees. It's the management and I would imagine the ownership of the aircraft that will be privatized, right?
5: Absolutely, and and, and that's and what we're saying is that that's the important key part is the actual aircraft itself and the pilots that actually operate that aircraft and the maintenance teams that actually work on that aircraft. That's the, that's the key component that makes the aircraft fly and my my problem with it is is that we're going to send it over into private hands, and then we're going to have to rely on a private company to make sure that everything is done, that these planes actually arrive in Labrador when they have to. What we're seeing now is – and you can go back to the 2021 submission to the health accord from NAEP explaining that the, the two uh, contracted out aircraft cost the province more – than the two actual aircraft owned by the province and the downtimes was actually more with the private aircraft than the actual public aircraft. So we're actually going to go over and send our aircraft over to a system that in the past that we actually used partially is it contracted out is actually going to have less is going to have more downtime already showing that it's actually going to cost us already going to cost us more money. It, it's absolutely ludicrous to think that this is what we're going to do while we're at the same time with the other hand we're going to bring all the private operators of road ambulances into the public sector. So it almost is like we're we're doing a trade-off.
1: Yeah. It would be curious to see not uh, not cocktail napkin math but real hard math about exactly what we're getting ourselves into here. You know, at one point And not that long ago, even just the concept of a public-private partnership was heavily scrutinized. And now it's the go-to mechanism. So I'll just add that to the conversation because, you know, it used to be, my God, we can't do this. It's going to be, you know, some short-term relief but long-term pain. But now just about every piece of public infrastructure, certainly the big uh, price tag items, are built with exactly that, the old three Ps. So I'm not exactly sure what path we're going down and why.
5: Well, exactly. And you look at this, okay, and, and 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 those P3s, Time will tell on those, but at the, right down to this, why are we doing this? Because you go back to the last um, study that was done on our ambulance and air ambulance system. The recommendation made was that the province have three aircraft, crewed and ready to go. The province never, ever bought the third plane. They said, no, we're not going to do it. We're not And they fought tooth and nail. They fought tooth and nail with me because I brought it up tons and tons of times, saying, buy the third aircraft. We have a problem. They wouldn't do it. That was the recommendation. You have three planes, you can have, you can manage the system. Instead, right now we're going to sell off our two planes, and uh, and uh, by the sounds of it, also you know uh, relinquish our actual you know uh, our unionized workers uh, from from the system. We're going to sell these three planes off, or these two planes we got off, and, and to a private entity to run. But at the same time, we was showing, and they showed the numbers in the health, um, when the, the health accord, when they were doing the rounds, uh, public consultations. It's going to cost us more money. And now, here's the thing, that we're going to send those over to a private entity, while our ground ambulances are going to be in a public entity. Uh, where, where's the? Di- there's going to be a disconnect there. We're already. The idea was to integrate it into a, into a, you know, a system. So now we're going to have private equipment, public equipment, we're just making it more complicated for ourselves anyway.
1: Seemingly. Uh, uh, anything else on that topic? Because I want to ask you a question about housing.
5: Okay, well, one more thing. Um, right now, as of someone who lives in Labrador, who has <laughs> who have been on the air limits myself and my, and my children, this is very concerning for Labradorians. And all Labradorians should be very concerned by the fact that we don't know what this is going to do. At the same time, we don't know how we're going to make sure that there's accountability because right now uh, we know that these paragraph and everyone in it is, is accountable to the health authority because they run off from, they run by the Department of Health. If it's going off to a private entity, we're worried. Where's the disconnect? Where is it, the accountability going to be when it comes to when situations arise in Labrador? That's my biggest concern right now.
1: Fair enough. Let's talk about uh, your uh, district as well, talk about access to some affordable housing uh, funding programs, whether it be the Housing Accelerator Fund or some of the more recent announcements. Is there a hurdle that faces the folks at Lab West for access to some of these funds?
5: Yeah, we, uh, we, we've... we So, uh, Pioneer Living Group, who's uh, who's been trying to get affordable housing for seniors, have made multiple applications to the federal government. And they come back with the most ludicrous reasons on why we're... we're, we're, we're... You know they can't access it. Uh, the last one was, apparently, the group hasn't been incorporated for long enough to apply. That was the last reason why we got turned down for funding. And at the other time, they allowed us to apply for the same funding three other times, but at the last time for some reason, they went up, we weren't incorporated long enough to to access the funding. and we had, the group had to be incorporated for so many years. It, it was It was absolutely ludicrous because the other two cut times. They worked with us to help get these applications in, and, then, and when they worked with us, they turned around and told us, oh, no, we made a mistake. Oh, you, you weren't incorporated long enough. It, it was absolutely ludicrous of what, uh, what the, uh, the federal government was saying to this group about uh, trying to get access funding. They have land that was donated to them. Uh, they have the organization. They have the, you know, uh, the concepts done. They had all the applications done. Uh, a great team of people actually worked very hard with this group to try to make sure to get across, and the federal government just turned their nose up at us. It was absolute disgraceful.
1: It's so strange. I mean, when the effort is being made and the, uh, the pleas are being apparently not heard, you don't know why. And it's so hard to explain or understand or wrap your mind around the rationale as to why some of these programs have all these blatant gaps. Uh, final thoughts, Jordan, before I take another call.
5: Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, just you stop and think about it, Patty, and, and Jerry said some great points, too. Um, I think maybe it's time for the Auditor General to go in and review all these private companies that are creeping into our healthcare system um, because I'm, I'm starting to think, um, before we know it, we will not be able to – the lines between what's actually owned by the province and operated by the province and what's actually owned by private uh, entities, especially uh, you know, foreign uh, – you know, from American and uh, foreign companies, I think the lines are going to get too blurred. And I think we actually – we should need to put – we need to nip that in the bud before it gets in anymore. So I think it's time for the Auditor General to go in and start reviewing these uh, these private deals that we got in our health care system before it's too late.
1: Appreciate the time, Jordan. Thank you. Take care. bye Take care. Bye-bye. Jordan Brown is the NDP member. For Lab West, another follow up piece of information regarding that privatization of the air ambulance service. And this is about pilots, ground crew, dispatch staff going to be directly impacted. There's another, so approximately 30 staff as part of that. Okay. Uh, will I keep going here, Dave? Yeah. Okay. Let's go to line number one. Tina, you're on the air. Hi, Tina. Oh,
6: hi. Sorry, Patty. No I'm just calling in. I, I want to um, ask a few questions to Jerry Earl. He called in um, earlier. Um, I'm wondering if Mr. Earl has ever had a debate on open line or came out and answered some questions from some people that had questions for him uh, about certain topics he discusses. Um, one in particular I want to talk about is, of course, HMP. and um, The whole situation is going on now, and the repeated promises to have it replaced. Um, I worked in government like 15 years, and I remember when I first started there, there was a mention of the new jail starting then.
1: Now, Jerry Earl would have little to no control over that particular timeline.
6: He would Okay, so he would have no control, but does Jerry Earl or the union have uh, meetings with these politicians or up in HR or any government members, uh, you know, for what's upcoming? Because I I know that staff members, um, I currently have a court case going on um, and the the case is against, I'm not going to go into details, but um, I have a lawsuit filed against NAEP HR government, Department of Justice, Office of the High Sheriff. I've I've been on before discussing it. The problem I have is all the time when I hear Jerry Earl call in, um, he discusses things that I feel he he knows the situations of. He's heard from other employees for years and years, and not only Mr. Earl, but previous new presidents. Um, And I want to know why it has to escalate like to almost disastrous situations. Like everyone knows that it's, it's very challenging now at HMP for the staff, for the inmates, and everyone is on edge because no one knows what's gonna happen. They're short staffed. There's huge opportunity for mental health disasters to happen there. Uh, and it's also happened in other workplaces in government but it, it seems it seems to me like mr Earl picks and chooses his topics he wants to talk about
1: i think that's like everybody right and i can't speak for the union or jerry Earl or carol farlong or anybody on the topics that are, are concerning to you so i'm not entirely sure what to say to this okay. but i'm at, i don't think this is the form for me to put you know, union leaders or what have you on the hot seat to take calls. It's not really what the show is designed for. But okay. do, you, do you ever get any answers from the union? Or because it's tied up in the courts, then everyone, of course, will keep their lips tight?
6: Well, the, the problem with me is um, it started in 2009 since I first came forward with stuff that was going on where I worked. And any time I came forward, the only time I could... It was only because I was worried my position was in jeopardy. And to my understanding, I was following whatever rules and, you know, uh, policies that were supposed to be in place at the time. So I I came, again, I'm the whistleblower of the Office of the High Sheriff. I'm I'm not shy about saying it. It is what it is. Um, I came forward and I feel personally I was penalized. But I also came forward about positions I applied for way back in 2009 and pretty much had to prove to NAEP every time. They agreed with me. HR agreed with me. Uh, other government ministers agreed with me. Yes, you were treated bad, but so what, pretty much. Um, I just think that they come out and talk about these situations. They talk about all the money that's being spent. They talk about things getting privatized. But they don't talk about all the money that's spent from employees that have to go to counseling and mental health issues, inmates, I guess, that are more mentally health challenged because of stuff that happens, and the staff at HMP the same way. I've heard since I've come out, I have a a TikTok social media site set up speaking of what's happening to me without going into big detail. I guess and I mean I have shared some stuff people can figure out who it is and whatever Okay, I'll
1: give you a couple of seconds to wrap it up Tina go ahead
6: Okay, Um, I just wonder if people ever look into the cost and what a cost for all of this for years and years and years written down when they could be helping the people that they're supposed to be helping helping their employees like they're supposed to be helping them Before it gets to this point, before people have to go public, before, like I said, I just want to say people have reached out to me that have gone through similar stuff like I have. But it seems to be wanted to be shoved under the rug, and they're willing to spend more money on lawyers, going to court, and being proven wrong sometimes. But nobody wants to talk about it. I don't understand that part of it. So if someone can answer that for me, I, i I appreciate it.
1: And I don't I, know. And I appreciate the time. Thank you, Dina.
6: Thank you, Patty.
1: Take care. Bye-bye. Uh,
6: you too. Bye-bye.
1: All right, let's uh, take a break. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk about a, a pending or upcoming or ongoing toy drive, and then we're going to talk to you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, John Barrett. You're on the air.
7: Good morning. How are you?
1: Best kind. How about you?
7: Good. Uh, Merry Christmas to you and to all your listeners.
1: The same to you, John. What motorcycle club are you with?
7: I'm with the uh, the president for the Rock uh, Motorcycle uh, Riding Club here in the Isthmus area. Okay. Based out of Arnold's Cove.
1: Welcome to the show. Tell us about the toy drive.
7: Yes, we're, uh, we started a toy drive about three weeks ago uh, for uh, children ages up to 16. Uh, we're working in concert with uh, the Salvation Army in Arnold's Cove and Bloomfield, uh, what we're... Uh, We've, we've done well on our uh, fundraising and uh, the collecting of toys so far. I'm uh, just reaching out to you to uh, get a little uh, exposure on Monday night, which is the 11th at 7 o'clock. Uh, we'll be at the uh, Walmart in Clarenville. Okay. And uh, we'll be doing our purchase of uh, toys and gifts for uh, for children at that point uh, on the On the 13th, which is Wednesday evening, we'll be doing a a donation to the Salvation Army here in Arnold's Cove. The reason I was reaching out is uh, hopefully I can get uh, some word out, Uh, and if anybody would like to uh, donate, by all means, if anybody would like to meet us at Walmart at 7 o'clock in Clarenville, that would be greatly appreciated. We're trying to put some smiles on children's faces this Christmas, because you know, uh, full well that things are uh, it's a little difficult uh, with the, the cost of living and the price of everything nowadays
1: that it is you know and the holidays is not always cherry for everybody so let's see if we can put a smile on some kids' faces with you know an unexpected gift this holiday season this christmas season uh John are you focusing on certain age groups are there certain types of toys that you're hoping to see what do you need
7: yes essentially any any age any age up to uh, sixteen so we're looking at uh Uh, toys for kids uh, and then when you look at that age group from 12 to 16 it's kind of the forgotten age group with toy drives or gift drives so uh, you know blankets uh, different different type of things like that cosmetic sets uh, those those type of things that would focus right now the need is around that 12 to 16 uh, age uh, bracket.
1: Fair enough and I'm glad that you and the folks in the club are doing this how many members do you have?
7: Uh, We currently have nine members. Um, We're based out of Arnold's Cove.
1: John, before we say goodbye, give the folks the details one more time where you're going to be.
7: Uh, Yes, thanks very much. Uh, We'll be at, uh, it's the Rock Riding Club. Uh, We'll be at uh, Walmart in Clarenville on Monday evening at 7 o'clock. And 8.30, we'll be at Canadian Tire in Clarenville.
1: Thanks for letting us know. Good luck with it, John. And thanks for doing this.
7: All right. Thanks a lot. Merry Christmas, and Merry Christmas to all your listeners.
1: Merry Christmas to you, too, John. Thanks, buddy. All right. All right. Bye-bye. There we go. Let's go. Line number three. Daryl, you're on the air.
8: Uh, Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? I'm
1: fine. Thanks for asking. How about you?
8: I'm doing very well.
1: Okay. Great. What's on
8: your mind? I have a very interesting challenge for you, Mr. Daly. Okay. Um, you give out Buddhist sayings on your open line show.
1: Well, I just read a quote today's Bodhi, Bodhi Day. It's just, yeah.
8: Yes. Um, my challenge for you, Mr. Daly, is to get a King James Bible, to open it up and read scripture on your open line show. Preferably, I would like to hear Isaiah chapter 53 would be an excellent place to start.
1: Okay. I went would to Catholic boys' school uh, from kindergarten so through you, grade 12. You, Pardon? Would you read Would you read Scripture on your open line show? Oh, I don't know. I, like, just let me ask you a question. Were you offended yeah. or something that I read? Oh, t- no, three I'm sentences?
8: not offended. No, I'm not offended. I just give you a challenge, and I hope you take up my challenge, Mr. Daly.
1: Let's see what we can do. It was a pretty generic piece of business. It wasn't exactly religious at all, the, the quote that I read this morning, and it's pretty famously... Uh, written and recited by people of all faiths you know
8: i'm, ju- I'm, ju- I'm ju- i
1: understand i heard the challenge yep yeah. i'm
8: just getting a challenge and it's not a uh anything that you uh, said about buddhism is not shared by a christian by the way mr Daly.
1: pardon me say that again
8: it's not shared by a christian what you said you made you said it's all faiths that believe what you just said no a christian doesn't believe what you said on the on your show
1: what about it would not be my believed cha- by a Christian?
8: My challenge to you, Mr. Daly, is to get a King James Bible, open up the pages, and read scripture on the Open Mind Show. That's my challenge. You have yourself a nice day.
1: The very same I to know, you. Thanks, sir. Take care. Uh, you have a good Christmas. You too, Daryl. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm not going to squeeze anyone on because we're just nudging up against the 10 o'clock news break. I suppose i should have known that was coming and so be it uh so look i'm hearing i've got a, a dozen emails here today and private messages people who just got in out of it off the roads drives that usually take 15 minutes people taking 40 45 minutes which is not necessarily the bad news because the conditions are tricky multiple collisions first responders on the scene at multiple sites cars sliding all over the road cars off the road now I guess there's not a ton of snow down But hearing endlessly, since I got to work this morning, the conditions are terrible. I experienced it on my drive-in this morning, and apparently it's only getting worse out there. I think the snow has possibly subsided at this point, but the greasy conditions continue. Let's check in on the Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Email address is openline.focm.com. When we come back, let's have a great remainder of the show. That requires you in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind.
0: Don't go away. Make a request anytime by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. And your request just might win you a cozy VOCM winter toque, your Merry Christmas station, your VOCM. Welcome back to the program.
1: Let's begin this hour on line number one. Say good morning to the mayor of the city of St. John's. That's Danny Breen. Mayor Breen, you're on the air.
9: Good morning, Patty. How are you?
1: Very well. Thanks. How about you?
9: I'm doing pretty good. Thanks.
1: Let's start with the most recent announcement about the Grand Slam of curling coming back to the province. It was out in CBS in 2019, but it's coming to St. John's at Mary Brown Center in November 24. So, you know, it's one thing for the sporting enthusiasts and the curling fans. Great news. What's the economic uh, shot in the arm that you think that you think this brings?
9: Well, we're estimating the economic impact to be around $2 million. And uh, what's, what's very important is the time of year that it's happening. Uh, that pre-Christmas uh, season is usually uh, kind of a slow time. Uh, for uh, for restaurants and bars and, and hotels here in the uh, in the region, so this gives a boost at a at a time of year when the businesses uh, could uh, could certainly use the additional business.
1: What are we looking at these days for uh, municipal transfer dollars to Mary Brown Center or St John Sports and Entertainment? I should say.
9: Well, you know, the uh, the after coming out of COVID, there's certainly been a change in the market as, in terms of events and other things. So our, uh, uh, our staff, we have a new CEO, Brent Mead, who's in place now at the uh, St. John Sports and Entertainment. And so uh, they're reviewing now the work that, that they're doing to try to get some more activity uh, going uh, at the uh, at, at the Mary Ground Centre and certainly with the convention business at the at the
1: St. John's Convention Center. I mean, it's long been a bugaboo. And even when there was thoughts of, you know, maybe the thought of selling off Mary Brown Center in full, you know, whether it be D. McDonald or anybody else, it it needn't have been a sole-sourced issue. But anyway, here we are. And it is good news. I'm looking forward to the Grand Slam coming down to Mary Brown's. But, you know, it's interesting when you hear people in the curling world, and not just Mark Nichols or Brad Gougeau or anybody else, but the people that have been here in the past, whether it be for the Scotties or the Briar or the Grand Slam out on CBS, wanting to come back to this area specifically. So I think that's encouraging. Hopefully that message or sentiment will bleed into other organizations and sports or conventions or shows that might want to come as well because we really need the activity in that building. Yeah, we
9: certainly do, Patty. And the other thing that's very encouraging about this is that this is one of the bigger buildings that will be on the uh, Grand Slam uh, tour. And I think that speaks to the uh, the popularity of, of Team Gushu and the quality of curling that takes place in these Grand Slams. We, You know, you got the best of the best in curling that will be participating in this. It's going to be a great event for uh, for the residents and for the fans in the province and, uh, and outside the province who will be travelling in to watch.
1: When it comes to the life expectancy of the Mary Brown Centre, it's still in relatively good shape. We've had some hiccups, you know, with the clock being broken for an extended amount of time, that kind of stuff. What kind of money is spent on preventative maintenance? Because if you don't spend the money now and keep the building up in good shape, then of course the price tag increases years down the road. So what kind of spend do we have inside that facility?
9: So, Fatty. For example, last year I think it was $1, 1.1, 1.2 million dollars spent on replacing the seats in the in the Mary Brown Center because, again, after 20 years, uh, it became uh, became an issue and uh, and so those seats were replaced. A pretty pretty significant job, but uh, but one that's uh, that's necessary. Um, I'm not sure what the capital uh, amount each year for the uh, for the Mary Brown Center is. But I think from everybody that's uh, that's there and had a look at it, the building is still in, in very very good shape. Uh, it's uh, it's one that uh, you know groups that come in, like people from uh, from Sportsnet with the Grand Slam of Curling, say, you know, are very pleased with the facility that's there, and people that uh, that play and uh, and and perform there are pleased with the facility as well. So I think it's been maintained very well, and uh, it's certainly. Uh, um, uh, generates a lot of activity in the downtown.
1: Of course, there's endless conversation, and I guess justifiably so, regarding the issues regarding poverty and homelessness in particular. What's the municipality's role in this task force? So what do the conversations sound like? Because now all of a sudden, it seems like there's a will to do something. We'll have to find a way. You know, from Minister Abbott yesterday to say that he hopes that nobody will be living in those tents behind the colonial building by uh, Christmas Eve. So what does the conversation sound like? So
9: fatty that's just the whole uh, the whole thing from my from my perspective uh I want to see us to be able to provide safe and and supportive housing to people that need it uh as soon as possible and uh, so yesterday we uh, we met with some of the organizers there and uh we're learning from them of what it would take to uh to kind of get to that point uh the province is uh is doing its work on uh on what kind of services and additional services that would be available so that the city's role is to be supportive in whatever way we can but i, I think everybody is focused on uh, helping the people there and helping them uh, get into uh, housing situations that work for them and uh, and in their particular needs you know it's almost an individual basis that you have to address this because there's so many different uh circumstances out there and it's a, a very challenging we're not on our own. It's a, it's a national uh, is- issue right now. And uh, so we have to keep uh, keep working at it, but keep working together. We can't afford to work in
1: silos on this. What specifically can the city do? Because, you know, Minister Abbott talking about, in large part, it's a, a provincial responsibility. But what's your role?
9: Well, so for for my role, and for example, we, uh, we work with the province to be able to address uh, the the washroom situation there, so uh, we're there to provide whatever assistance uh, when it comes up. But we're also uh, our role there is to work with the community groups, and we have a great a um, uh, great relationship with the community organizations that are providing services on the ground. So we kind of uh, we we work with them and and try to assist them in in delivering the services that uh, uh, that they need to deliver. And homelessness, St. John's is a key player there. I'm a key coordinating part of this effort.
1: I appreciate the time. Anything else you'd like to say this morning? Oh, wait, before I let you go. So I don't know what the, uh, the status is of snow clearing and or ice management this morning, but there's a ton of complaints coming out about the greasy conditions and people will endlessly say, I don't see a plow. I don't see a salt truck. Where are we today? Are we fully staffed up and ready for the winter season? Because the roads yeah. out there today are treacherous.
9: Yeah. Our winter shift is on the, the staff have been out, uh, all night. They've been salting and, uh, plowing and doing whatever work is necessary this morning they're around 7:30 this morning quarter after seven it turned and uh, we it got very blustery it's really cold it started freezing up a bit and uh, so our uh, our staff kept working through it but i came in around then around eight o'clock or so and uh the, the roads were uh, were were not great um you know it's just uh it it, it got really bad there all of a sudden and uh, you know, it was slow going, and there, there was a few collisions. I could hear the, the sirens going around uh, around my place. So, uh, you know, all I can say is our staff were out; they were doing their work, uh, salting all night, doing, uh, getting everything done. But sometimes the weather conditions just uh, just get ahead of you, and you just got to drive uh, drive according to the conditions that are out there.
1: Appreciate the time this morning, Mayor Brink.
9: Okay, thanks, Patty. Have a great weekend. You
1: too. Bye-bye. Danny Breen, of course, the mayor of the city of St. John's. Let's go to line number five. Keith, you're on the air.
10: Hey, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Hey, yeah, so I just wanted to drop by. I haven't been on in a while. Um, Our advocacy group for COVID uh, safety and awareness has the first billboard in Canada uh, for long COVID awareness, and it is on Topsail Road uh, in your neighborhood, I guess. Yeah, and it's just uh, warning people about uh, long COVID and, uh, you know, asking them to mask up uh, during this time. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a big green billboard on Topsail Road by the uh, liquor store in Lawton's, and you can't miss it. And it's the first of many. So uh, we're pretty excited about that. Um, Just wanted to touch base, uh, share some information. I I keep hearing things like uh, post-pandemic and coming out of COVID, uh, you know, on the radio and stuff, and I'm, I'm kind of like, confused about it because we are not out of COVID. Uh, we're not post pandemic. Uh, you know, it's a misconception that many people have. We actually right now have uh, record numbers of COVID uh, across the world. Uh, wastewater measurements are showing uh, levels that are pretty much on par with the biggest Omicron wave of 2022. Uh, so we are far from, uh, you know, out of COVID or done with the pandemic sort of thing um which is you know part of the reason why our advocacy group is sharing uh, these billboards and the constant education that we're providing through social media and other channels and uh yeah so that's that's what we're up to
1: I see the waste uh, the wastewater data I do follow Moriarty, just to keep abreast of what is happening you know yeah. i don't even know where we go with this I, I think most people realize that it's not gone we might be done with the virus but it's not done with us kind of stuff and it's yeah. just basically going to be individual responsibility i don't i think people are aware of what's happening it's just that I, I, there's certainly not going to be any political will or, or public health will to go back down the road of restrictions and mandates and uh closures and banning social gatherings and the like and here we come fast track into the season where m- people are more inclined to gather in large numbers so i guess we're yeah. just at, at a stage here now where people will have to assess their own risk and do what they think is best for them and their family because i don't think there's any public health measures coming
10: See, Patty, that would be fine if people didn't have to go to essential spaces, right? So uh, hospitals right now, hospital infections are through the roof, and that's globally, right? So I heard a uh, you know a little soundbite with Janice Fitzgerald earlier, and she said she doesn't expect a rise in cases. Uh, the the entire world is expecting a rise in cases and seeing their healthcare systems basically stressed to the max. I mean, you have uh, kids' hospitals filling up daily. I just I'd, I'd like to know where she gets this optimistic sort of outlook and what data or what studies or what reality she's looking to to get this kind of uh, sort of, you know, hopeful uh, outlook as as we're, we're seeing the general wellness of the community in Newfoundland is, you know, it's low. It's very low. You look around, you anecdotally, you can see, you know, everyone is sick, right? So um, every post on social media is like, oh, the kids are sick again. The kids are sick again. And with the clear evidence, that uh covid does cause immune damage now this is not a, a theory anymore even though advocacy groups have been screaming about it for like two two and a half years three years covid damages the immune system so it leads to other infections from everything else so it puts a strain on healthcare. and and what really bothers me about this whole notion of uh you know uh, everything's going fine we're not expecting more cases when the entire planet is expecting more cases, it really bothers me because it, it lets people think, okay, well, we don't have to worry, when we actually do, right? So we, we can take individual steps, but, I mean, if you compare COVID spread to smoking, uh, you know, you couldn't avoid smoke in the 80s, 90s, 70s if you went into a bingo hall. You couldn't do it. Even if you wore an N95, you're not avoiding it, right? You come home, you're covered in smoke, uh, whatever. So there are certain areas and there are certain steps that we can take to make society safer for everybody. So we said, we've heard that phrase, we have the tools. We are not using the tools. This is comparable to in the spring when uh, my, my son doesn't need his winter coat anymore. I just take the coat and put it away forever. And I tell him, you don't, you don't have to wear a coat ever again if you, if you choose not to. And then we get the winter again and he's freezing. And and I don't use the tools like it just doesn't make any sense because if we take steps that we know worked in 2020 and 2021 when we had public masking, our our community wellness was pretty much at an all time high. And ever since then, ever since we decided COVID is mild, which it is not. Uh, we have seen a drop drastically in our community wellness across the board. It's not just here, it's everywhere, but there is no explanation for it. There's no data to back it up. There's no retraction of it's mild. It's just go off and we'll pretend that everything is fine when it definitely is not. So there's too much information out there. We, we have studies just, just came in that show that 20% of babies who are infected in the womb have uh, neurodevelopmental delays. 20%. Now, Patty, if, if this was 10 years ago and I told you that there's a, a, a virus or a bug going around that's going to cause 20% of infants to have developmental delays in their brains, we would do something about it. But instead, we're hearing sound bites from our chief medical health officer saying we're not expecting a rise in cases when the rest of the planet is. It just doesn't make any sense. I'm sorry if I'm getting a little heated here, but we're seeing people getting sick, we're seeing our excess deaths never decreasing. We've, we've, we're losing people every month. We're seeing more obituaries on Facebook than we've ever had in our in our lifetimes. And we're not getting any information from our government or our health leadership. And it's unacceptable, and it's time for a change.
1: Appreciate the call. Thanks, Keith.
10: Thanks, Patty. Take care, buddy. You Merry too. Christmas.
1: Merry Christmas to you. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll get an update on the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, and uh, Peter's in the queue to talk air ambulance, and then whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Okay, here we go. Let's get an update on the Tomb of the Unknown uh, Unknown Soldiers, because as we heard, a local company called Ocean Floor Granite had the contract taken away from them. Minister Abbott says he's confident it can be delivered on time, and of course, all the $6 million refurbishment at the National War Memorial, set to be done before July the 1st of next year for the 100th anniversary. Mark Brace from Ocean Floor Granite is on too. Good morning, Mark. You're
11: on the air. Hi, Patty. Uh, hope you're having a good day there.
1: Hanging in there. What's the update, Mark?
12: Yeah.
11: Uh, so before we talk about the tomb, there, I just want to give a little bit of, uh, I guess, trail record of like my dealings with government. Um, so um, I guess everybody's aware that I was on Den, and I did make the largest deal in Den history. They uh, they were very excited over it. Uh, When I came back to Newfoundland and I presented the deal to the government, I I thought that uh, they were going to be really excited and really support me because of the the level of uh, entrepreneurs that I brought to the table. Uh, First, when I bought this property, uh, Patty, um, I wanted to know who owned all the inventory uh, because there was a lot of blocks sitting in the quarries, and uh, we wanted to know who owned it because we could use it to sell or use for collateral and different things like that. Um. So right away when we bought the property, Natural Resources came out, Perry Canning, and uh, they issued a letter that all the royalties were paid on the inventory. So that was good. I went on then to get appraised by an Italian company, uh, Dementra, came over and actually uh, independently appraised the inventory at about $120 million in value. So before I went on Dragon's I was pre-approved a $1 million by BDC uh, using that inventory as security. And from the Dragon Stand, uh, I had to use that inventory as security for them as well. But three weeks after I got the Dragon Stand deal, the government formed a tribunal board and took my right to sell the material or use it as collateral. And uh, the Dragon's tried to work it out with the government for roughly two years, but the government was uh, very unresponsive and uh, most times never even returned emails.
1: How much money did you strike a deal with, with the dragons?
11: It was a $2 million deal for 20% of my company. Okay. And I, and I had a million dollars I was pre-approved for by BDC beforehand. So because of all that there, because of them expropriating my ownership over the inventory, it actually caused all those deals to fall through because uh, I had, I didn't have the collateral there to use as a security firm. Um, also it caused trouble with Dragons too because the Dragons then seemed like the response that they got from the provincial government here and it kind of it really gave them a bad taste I guess of doing business further in the province. Um, so that, that was just like – and it's been several issues like that with the government. It just seems like no matter what I bring to the table, the government is just not going to support me. They're going to shut their doors, and uh, I, don't, I don't really know the reason for that. But uh, now, like, we get to this project, this unknown tomb, and right now, uh, Patty, if I don't complete that tomb, they're actually looking into having that rock uh, come from India, made in a quarry, They use this child labor and slavery in their quarries.
1: Where's that information Uh, coming from?
11: I was speaking with Mr. John Abbott last night, and I'm aware of the contractor that they're looking to use as a supplier. That supplier buys all their black granite from India or China. And um, this here looks like it's going to be coming from India. And it just seems like it's a bit ironic that, This is the remains of a soldier who fought for our freedom so that we're not under slave labor here, but the tomb that they're going to have uh, made now for him is potentially coming from India that will be made by slavery.
1: Yeah, we're... We're probably going to have Minister Abbott on the show if there's a variety of things in his portfolio that are uh, front and center. So we'll invite him on, on Monday or Tuesday, as soon as we can get him, for an update on that front, including this potential contract with India. Uh, Mark, do you have an actual update on the tomb or just the, that information you just shared?
10: Well, I
11: did speak with John Abbott actually last uh, night, well, yesterday evening around 4 o'clock in that, and uh, he did seem really upset over the issue, and... Uh, I told him, like, I might look into legal action and that, and uh, he actually even said to me that uh, he would probably do the same.
1: I appreciate the time and the update this morning, Mark. Uh, stay tuned because we'll try to have John Abbott on as soon as possible.
11: Yes, hopefully. Uh, hopefully they come to their terms and support this great project. Like, uh, I'm the only one in North America with Black gabbro, so... It's uh, it's something that, like you know, just supporting me. It's not just supporting this province or this uh, this project, but it's supporting like the company to move forward and be able to get into the world markets and employ the hundreds of people that we potentially can.
1: Thanks for your time this morning, Mark. Stay in touch. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye bye. All right, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number six. Peter, you're on the air.
13: Good morning, Valley. Morning to you. Uh, I wish like to wish uh, you and your listeners. Uh a Merry Christmas, and uh, all the best in uh, 2024. Uh, before uh, I might hang up and I forget, but anyway, uh, all the best to uh, everyone.
1: The same to you. Thank you, Peter.
13: And uh, at the same time, I'd like for it to be peace in the world, and uh, regardless of Israel, Palestine, Russia, Ukraine, or whatever. But uh, that's uh, wishful thinking, I suppose. But hopefully in 2024, a lot of the issues will be resolved. That's me as a person. But anyway, I'd like to wish... Uh, Judy Foot, uh, past uh, MHA, MP, Lieutenant Governor. You know her and her family all the best, and thank her for her services. And I just like to say, you know, uh, if she wanted to give the Senate a try, and I'm not a real uh, fan of the royal family or anything like that now, but uh, I, uh, Judy Foot, uh, did uh, serve, serve Newfoundland and Labrador, and she served uh, Canada well. And when she was MP for in Ottawa, she uh, was uh, she represented Newfoundland in Ottawa, to the best of my knowledge, and uh, she never, you know, represented Ottawa to Newfoundland. You know, she was always on uh, this side of the fence for for the ones there. But anyway, all the best to her and her okay. family, you know, and I wish you have a merry Christmas and uh, and a happy New Year, so Also, fair enough. Uh, thanks for giving me the time to do that, Patty. But. Uh, it's the Ambulance Services that came to light there. Well, it's been in the works for a while, if you be listening, like, behind the scenes. Like, privatizing, things like that, you know. Like, I, I know Mr. Jerry Earl. I got a lot of respect for him as, as leader of NAEP and everything like that, and you get to look after his workers. But at the same time, you know, like, I think this is going to be a plus for uh, for the Ambulance Services. And uh, there's a lot of other things in Newfoundland and Labrador, not health care, but... Uh, that could be privatized, and it could help out the government, the taxpayer, and everything else. You know, like, uh, and like once this uh, air services is privatized, that's a hundred percent privatized. Well, they, you know, the government, well, they will be paying the, the contractors, but at the same time, you know, like uh, they they can hold those contractors uh, accountable instead of the people like complaining the government. It, it'd be more or less between that contractor and and government. And, uh, you know, like uh, like air service, the ambulance service, you know, the government don't have to hire mechanics and, you know, hangers and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and if an ambulance is not fit to be on the road... You know, like the school buses, that's privatized. They get the right to take it off the road.
1: Yeah, but now the ground ambulances will be under the NL Health Services itself. The it's the air ambulance uh, provision is going to be privatized. Now the staff will be public sector employees, but the folks who are uh, operating the system of air ambulance that's the private issue.
13: Yes, that's a private issue. But what I'm saying is, that it all should be. My opinion is, it should be privatized. What
1: that's if that? What if that costs us more money? Which it usually does. I
13: don't think it will. Because I think uh, government is very wasteful, and uh, if the if the, a contractor provides this service, he's going to have to provide a service. If not, he'll be, he'll be taken from like the guy was just on before there about uh, monument, and uh, so uh, you know, like uh, he will have and and, and contractors uh, companies got a way of uh, making money and saving money at the same time. So no and. Uh, Another thing that comes to mind this morning that could be privatised, the Bell Oil Ferry. That's one. Another one down there in uh, St. Brendan's. Well, one thing about the Bell Oil, I guess there's people, even though if they're riding for $5 uh, a trip on a multi-million dollar ferry, but, you know, who's picking up the tab, you know? You and I are picking up the tab.
1: Yeah, the interprovincial uh, ferry service costs about eighty million dollars a year. Uh, I always found it fascinating that there's more people traveling across the tickle between the Cove and Belle Island than cross the straits with Marine Atlantic. That's an amazing stat.
13: Yeah, haven't said that, but what's the rate that they're paying? You know, oh, you want to somebody. Who's
1: we are subsidizing the Peter. The yes, you
13: get to a cab, you know, or get on a bus or a plane or whatever, you know, if you want to ride this, and. Uh, and live in the place of your choice, not what's the best place for you. You know that—that's my opinion, Patty. I said it before on open line. And I really believe it. I think you know, like we got too much land mass, we got too many roads. We'll never have good roads because we got too many to plow, too many to upkeep. We got more guardrail here, you know, and probably in Ontario because of the rugged terrain. And you know, like all of this costs us money to develop and it kind of get. Everybody complained about the sand, the salt, and all this kind of stuff. Road clearing and everything like that. But if we had less roads and communities would Alchemy together and cut the expense, less town councils, less fire departments, and everything else, you know, we would more viable problems. But right now, a 500,000 people, you know, like... We're spread out over such a large area that we can't prosper, because everybody wants their own school, everybody wants their own doctor, and so they should have a doctor, and everything else, you know. But uh, And then on the other side of the coin, when you're talking about tidy homes and all this kind of stuff, everybody wants them inside the overpass, so that's not going to work either. So, like, uh, we got to do stuff to help ourselves, and privatizing the ambulance service is a start. But I think the ferry services and other things like that, you know, could be uh, could help us out in a tax dollar way as also.
1: I think that well, if you're talking tiny homes, for instance, I'm going to guess there's more tiny homes outside the overpass than there is inside.
13: Yes, but if government came in, what I'm saying is, and developed an area, just say Avondale, for instance, that's not that far. Bay Roberts not that far. Southern Harbour's not that far, really. Any any place between Claremont and and St. John's is not that far from the main hospital. You know, like, uh, you come in and put in a subdivision, or councils could look for government means for a subdivision, put 50 houses on there, maybe people be interested in building some. You know? maybe, and, but... and it wouldn't cost as much out here as it would cost to build in St. John's.
1: But there's nothing stopping anyone from doing that, though, Peter.
13: Well, I think... The land needs to have accessibility, and you know, like uh, there had to be some government funding for water and sewer. So you know, they extend in a community in order for to do this, right? That's that's what I, you know, after that, I think you would see people be interested in developing.
1: Yeah, th- th- this is strictly up to the municipalities. They have all the authority and control. In fact, the problem that they're having is they don't have the staff and the resources to actually even fill out the applications for access to the housing accelerator fund. There's $4 billion sitting there, and each municipality has equal crack at it.
13: Well, in Southern Harbor here, Patty, we got a good, uh, we got a good council. And, uh, so, uh, you know, nothing is perfect, but uh, I'm just saying that uh, it should be a good chance for other town councils like that. And you uh, just take like uh, Conception Bay uh, out there, Conception Bay doors. There's more town councils out there, starting from North River, Bay have Harbor Grace, Carbonair, all those places. You know, like, why don't they uh, do the right thing? In uh, my opinion, that's only my opinion. I'm not telling people what to do. That's my opinion. That'll come together, make everything better for yourselves. And uh, it's going to come eventually, whether it's inflicted on you directly, or you can do it yourself and try to make it better. And the same thing out here in other, other places, you know. And we got ferries running around with nobody on them. And when they do get on them, they want to pay $5. And you know what $5 is worth today when it costs the fuels. And, you know, crews on them, well, the skippers on those and the engineers and all that, you know, they're not working for nickels and dimes, and neither is the crew. So somebody got to pay for all this. So, you know, if you want those services, somebody, you want to have to chip in and help pay too. You can't be always putting the burden on the taxpayer for something that you want. And, you know, like it goes back to seniors. You know, maybe maybe it free up a little bit of money for seniors and stuff like that, you know, if government had more money to put into it. And back to the Ambulance Service, I don't think Tom Osborne made this decision himself. I think there was all the ministers across Newfoundland and Labrador that's in the Fury government, and I think they done the best for what they had. But okay. they should take it to one step further. That's my opinion. And uh, I do and do the right thing. And uh, anyway, Patty, that's my beef for the day. Well, not a beef. It's just an opinion. Like I say all the time, okay. it's an opinion. Everybody got the right to come on. And uh, and I also wish uh, the President of Nature, Earl, all the best and his, uh, and his members.
1: I appreciate the time, Peter.
13: Have a good day. And have all the best. Bye. You too. Bye, Peter.
1: Uh, Very quickly, you know, yesterday we mentioned the fact that the Conservatives uh, federally were going to filibuster a whole bunch of bills, thousands of amendments, maybe delay the Parliament closing and all, what have you. But apparently what happened is uh, every one of the amendments that they were going to try to go through uh, painstakingly one by one, they grouped them all together. Five minutes later, it was over. So... Didn't quite work. Uh, let's take a break when we come back. Trent Langdon's in the queue. He's the president of the NLTA. Do not go away.
0: Weekdays on VOCM, it's open line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Say so good morning to the president of the NLTA. That's Trent Langdon. Trent, you're on the air.
14: Good morning, Patty. Good to speak with you again.
1: Good to have you on the program. So I guess the good news is that teachers ratified the collective bargaining agreement. Do we have a percentage of teachers that uh, voted in favour?
14: Yeah, we got uh, roughly it was seventy six percent voted in favor of those who voted. It was about seventy two percent of of teachers that voted. Uh, so a very strong turnout. Uh, it was a protracted uh, 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 process. Uh, it took several months or many months, I should say, well over a year. Uh, but uh, you know we're we're in a position here now and seeing that type of response from our membership that it it, it was a fair deal.
1: So uh, good news that it gets closed, But inside the rank that voted against, what were their concerns? Can you share? Well,
14: yeah, absolutely. So, you know, bottom line, uh, you know, this this particular agreement focuses on what it means to be a teacher in the province, you know, as, as a professional, but also uh, a lot of our members are still concerned about the class size and composition that are in our, in our schools. It's, it's never been part of the collective agreement to reference that, the formula for allocation and so on. Uh, but there is such a heavy stress in our system right now, uh, uh, just in terms of uh, the shortages that we have, uh, people being redeployed, people uh, having their classes doubled up on a regular basis, even to the point where uh, certain individuals are being told, okay, let's just supervise for, for this period and then we'll see what the next period brings. So, you know, that, that kind of pressure, uh, uh, c- you can't always address that in, in a tentative agreement. Uh, you know, there's other ways and other committees and other work that can be done outside of that, of that one piece. Uh, so that, that's a heaviness that's there. Yeah, obviously, related to all that is just the mental health needs that are in, in, the, in the system, uh, the violence that's there, uh, and just the heightened stress that's that's overall in the system.
1: Inside the world of substitute teachers, what does easier access to accrued sick leave actually mean?
14: So ultimately, uh, prior to this contract, uh, a, a substitute teacher would have would have had to have worked fifty days before they could access their sick leave. It was a very antiquated and uh, uh, draconian, really, approach to uh, to sick leave. Uh, but now, uh, with, with the new agreement, uh, they could access it immediately.
1: We uh, we all know whether people with healthcare professionals, teachers, and other professionals trying to get them to work in rural, isolated parts of Canada yeah. is becoming increasingly difficult. What are the improved benefits to try to uh, deal with that particular concern?
14: Right. So our isolated, uh, you know, first of all, all teachers in Labrador, we, we were able to increase uh, the, the isolation pay for, for those particular areas. Uh, you know, it's the cost of living up in those areas is, is, is astronomical. It's hard enough uh, in, in the more uh, urban areas, I guess. Uh, but also we were able to get other communities underneath the, the isolated area uh, definition. Uh, so any way we can support our members in those regards, it's, it's also an incentive piece for those that we're trying to recruit into those areas. Those certain areas have been hard to fill for years uh so if there's any way that we can lighten the load uh there's travel costs obviously to and from there's uh, again just the cost of groceries and so on so uh you know there were some improvements there for our,
1: our rural isolated areas can you expand on what the improvements are
14: yeah so basically there was uh, uh just i guess to simplify it there was there was different pots of money that were available to uh to different uh, areas depending on where they were uh but you' were only allowed to get one pot versus the two and and so on we were able to open that up to include both pots now and uh, uh some increased uh, allowances within so yeah there was just greater access to,
1: to incentives okay that's anything else on that front before we move on.
14: No, not not a, overall. It was again. It was a protracted process. We know it, it. We can't please everybody with it. Obviously, there were some no votes. Uh, a great percentage of our members said yes, uh, but by no means uh, is is the, is the work over. This is just uh, just the first step in in a long process of improving things.
1: You have probably heard me talking about getting it right in education to cure different yeah. issues, uh, econ- economically speaking or societally speaking and i've been talking about learning loss and the lack of attention to it in this province and it's not just about the pandemic but that program pardon me that report from the program for international student assessment should be alarming to everybody regardless if you have a child in the system because your your best outcomes are going to be wholly dependent on a well-educated population. So let's just go get, dig into some of the numbers. In particular, math. The way we think about math, the way we deliver math curriculum has changed dramatically. And I'm not so sure we're on the right track given the math scores. This is a trend since 2003. Mm. According to the study, the provinces with the largest drop in math scores since 2018 were Newfoundland and Labrador with yep. 29, 29. Way ahead of the next one, Nova Scotia, at 24. So yep. when you hear these numbers, how do you hear them?
14: I'm not surprised one bit, to be honest. And uh, you know, bottom line, we just started the interview there with uh, discussion around uh, uh, shortages in our classrooms and so on. Uh, when you've got all of these other variables that come into play, you know, significant absenteeism by students, uh, mental health concerns, uh, just COVID hangover, uh, and loss of time during COVID, you know, all of those variables coming together, along with a sig- significant and severe teacher shortage in this province. Um, you know, we've been we've been banging the drum for a long time that. The, the hidden reality right now is triage mode every time a school opens uh, for the day, and. Uh the education system in this province needs significant attention and sustained attention. Right now, healthcare has been and, and will be for some time, I'm sure, get the focus it needs. But uh, And I often quote you, believe it or not, Patty, when you say, you know, if we can get education right, we can get everything else right. Because I truly believe um, if we get education right in the, f- in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, we won't see 10 cities. We won't see the justice system in such need. We won't see those emergency um, mental health rooms filled like they are. Because if we can't rely on the, the school system as is. PISA is an excellent indicator. Finally, we get some true numbers. We've been saying this for years, but now we can actually put our thumb on, okay, 29 points down, quite significant. And and to be leading the, the country in that capacity, not
1: good enough. So it's, you know, here's a quote from Ann Stoke, a math professor at the University of Winnipeg. First of all, we're not spending enough time on math in schools. And second of all, kids just aren't getting good instruction in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. They're not getting explicit instruction. They're not getting enough practice. That really needs to change. So between that quote and even just the way we devise and deliver the math curriculum, I've heard from math professors at Memorial University, you know, we'll talk about no longer is the modern day way to just, you know, rote memory with your times table and whatnot. But there's something to be said for the way the curriculum once was and how we assess where a child is with math or science or reading or any other subject matter. So as opposed to simply focusing on the amount of time we spend on it, do you think there's a problem with the curriculum itself?
14: Uh, well, I was, I'm not by no means am I a math expert, so I certainly <laughs> refrain from speaking to that one. But uh, in terms of the math teachers I've spoken with, uh, they, they do very much feel it's a, it's a heavy curriculum, that it's, it's, it's very fast. And uh, the bottom line, in the end, we, we got to make sure that teachers have face time with, with these students. And if every single day we're seeing circumstances where there's other things interfering, or that your math class is, is interfered with by doubling up, or uh, you know you've, you've been pulled aside to, to do another type of work in your building uh, obviously curriculum as heavy as it is if you start missing a day or two here and there and you can't get through the curriculum it's, it's, it's not going to get done so uh, you know I just it's not as simple obviously to, to speak about math not as simple to talk about reading that the system right now is under so, so much pressure that uh, as I listed off a bunch of things to start there that uh, how can we truly get to understanding why, why a student is learning or not learning uh, unless we really hit some of these underlying basic needs and food secu- uh, OECD for example uh, they outline food insecurity as one of the big reasons why achievement levels are low and lower they also uh, reference distraction of uh, uh, distraction by digital devices so, like there's so many variables that come into play into getting a child to at least engage in the learning process uh, that uh, uh, we need those people the teachers and the teaching learning assistants in front of them, ensuring that they're getting the information and right now we can't guarantee that.
1: Most parents and older siblings are able to help at home with reading, for instance, in reading yeah, comprehension because yeah, yeah, it's yeah, easily yeah. done at home. But math and science are entirely different, Kindle of Fish. Math sometimes you might it might take some very explicit instruction and time for you know to grasp uh, a certain concept. Because mm-hmm. it might be okay at math, but some concepts are just, you know, sometimes hard to figure out for the initial figure out and then to work on and to practice because because Unless we figure this out and get it right, because a lot of the jobs of the future will be math-based and science-based. It's just what it's what we're seeing. The transition and the trend is unmistakable. Uh, final thought to you, Trent, before we say goodbye.
14: Yeah, again, I've already referenced it. This this is this, Our education system, we can get it right here. I really do believe it, but when we're seeing these kinds of numbers come through, it's very disappointing. Uh, and what's the plan that's really in place? We've gotten some commitments from government in our collective agreement uh, that uh, are committing to committee work around uh, responsive teaching and learning and uh, recruitment retention. It's, it's going to address some of these things. Uh, but at the same time, there needs to be sustained attention uh, to the education system.
1: Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you.
14: Thanks, Patty. All the best.
1: You too. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. That's Trent Lange. He's the president at the NLTA. Let's take a break. When we come back, William's in the queue. He wants to respond to Keith and Keith's commentary regarding long COVID and public health measures. And Sheila's got an issue with an oil delivery. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. William, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you? Okay, thank you. How about you?
15: Uh, I'm doing okay excuse my voice um but uh thank you for taking my call and happy holidays to you your family and all your listeners
1: the same to you thank you
15: okay um I, the only, my the only purpose for my call was it, it was not so much a long term COVID, it's how it can so quickly affect you i I was doing so well after twenty twenty I took all the precautions. And unfortunately, yesterday morning, I tested positive. (laughs) And I just want people to know that, you know, something, keep an eye on your symptoms, you know, the runny nose, the sore throat. You might think it's nothing, and maybe it's not. But in all honesty, uh, you know, uh, never be too cautious.
1: Yeah, people will... You know, I, I don't know how individuals are going to behave, and here comes the Christmas season. Yeah. Guaranteed, the I, Christmas party season is upon us already. So, Absolutely. I don't know what it's going so. to mean, and there's been yeah. celebrations in years, the past few years where they've been yeah. severely compromised, and I don't know what people are going to do. I really yeah. have no earthly idea, because I know the Christmas party season, in my circle of friends and business, starts now. So
15: and but I just want people to know that like i'm I'm only a young man i'm fifty two years old and I'm two hundred pounds, but this is kicking my butt like you wouldn't believe.
1: I'm sorry to hear that. I was sick there a few yeah. or a couple or three weeks ago, and I was brutally ill. Now I tested negative for COVID, but I'm not so sure those rapid tests are very accurate anyway, to be honest with you. So yeah, I don't I mean, know. I kind of felt like I had the symptoms that people talk about with COVID. I've only had yeah. it once formally, and that was traveling there a couple of summers ago. but yeah. yeah, it's out there, and I know look people are sick of hearing about it. I get it. Does, does anybody yeah. think there's anyone more sick of hearing about COVID than me? No so but i know it's still there and i know it's a real issue
15: and that's the thing it's like my voice is really really gone um you know i've I've been having like i've been you know, upset, stomach and i'm either frozen dead or i'm sweating one or the other right it's, it's one of those things you just like people got to understand this is this is not like i it's not that i didn't believe it because but i never had it but i i tested positive yesterday morning and i just i just trying to let people know like honestly guys this is not a joke if you get it and you've got a, a, you know a, 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 an immune system compromised or anything else I, my voice is gone and I play guitar and sing so <laughs> You know, it's 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 it, 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 I, I, like I might like you know. I mean, I'm I I know the age may not be a big thing, and, and the, the the weight is not a big thing. I'm, I my biggest fear, I guess, is I'm asthmatic. But you know, I I I play guitar and sing, but my voice is gone. And guys, listen, I just want people out there to hear me. Just uh, listen, do me a favor. Keep an eye on yourself, and it's we're coming into a season where, yes, you are right, Mr. Daly. We're going to be into a, a situation where, yeah, you know, people are getting together with Christmas and everything else. It only takes one person to pick up something and bring it into a house, and you're going, you could, you know, you could make 20 people sick.
1: People look, I mean, the entirety of the pandemic, whether it be The amount of fear that was spread and the restrictions and mandates, it's been tough, man, and for a lot of people. And so I know as soon as Keith came on, bing, 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 bing in my email, bang, 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 bang in my Twitter. People are sick of hearing about it. I get it. But we can't pretend it's over. Now, people will judge themselves accordingly, handle themselves accordingly, whatever they think is the best thing for them and their family. And hopefully they don't run into any serious illness, whether it be any of the respiratory uh, issues that are out there in the public. And look, I'm sick of it too, but it's not sick of me. Uh, will
15: yeah, you? I, I, sorry, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to. But yeah, but you're right. Like I'm, I'm, I'm tired of hearing of it as well. Very, uh, you know, and that's the thing. I mean, I, my mom is 71. I don't want to give it to her, right?
1: Yeah, I, I understand, and I hope yeah. you recover asap. And I appreciate your time. Be well.
15: Yeah, I will, and I'm, 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 I hope I will. So, uh, but I just want to just let people know, like, in all honesty. I wish everybody well.
1: For sure. Thanks, William. Take care. Uh,
15: Yeah. Thank you very much.
1: You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Let's see what Sheila's issue here is on line one. Sheila, you're on the air.
12: Hi. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Um, My father is an elderly gentleman. He lives out in Spaniards Bay. Uh, I kind of coordinate his care. He's got some medical issues, and he's pretty much homebound. So in the middle of November, I called his oil company for an oil delivery. I asked him to fill his tank. A week went by, and uh, I had his home care worker check his tank, and the oil had not been delivered. So I called again. It was on a Wednesday, and the company assured me that the truck would be in his area on Friday, and they would deliver his oil. Uh, My family member that picks up his mail the following week uh, called me and said there was an invoice there for $473 for oil that was delivered. I paid the $473 to this company out of my father's account. Yesterday, his home care worker called and said that his oil tank was below empty, which I couldn't understand. I had just paid for the oil. I knew it was two weeks. Definitely didn't burn that amount of oil in that time. So I called the company, the company looked through his account, he said he has a credit on his account of $473. When she dug into it, she said, it looks like there was a glitch in the system, he never got his oil. So how many other people, seniors, vulnerable people, are getting charged and paying for oil that they never received?
1: How did you get the bill? Because it sounds like a very specific number for amount of oil that was not delivered. So where how did the bill appear? In your email address or was it in his mailbox or how did it work?
16: It,
12: it came to his mailbox.
1: So someone physically put a bill for $473 in a man's mailbox but never took the hose off the truck and filled up the tank.
12: That's what it sounds
1: like. That doesn't sound like a glitch, does it?
12: Not to me either. So I called the company first thing because I was, you know, concerned the tank is less than empty. I said he got to get oil today. Spoke with the with the lady. She said, okay, we'll we'll get that out to him today. Took the information. Uh, and so thirty minutes later, she called me back. She said there's no driver in the area until next Wednesday. I said, my dear, his tank is below empty senior citizen. I went through the whole thing, housebound, home care, you know, you know, what is he supposed to do? She said, he can get a jerry can and go to the gas station and get some diesel to tie him over until we can get the delivery out, or you can call another provider. I said, well, that's not even a sensible option, and you have his $473. So I asked to speak to her manager. She said, there is no managers here in customer service until next week. I said, well, there has to be someone there above you that I can speak to about this issue. Nobody there till next week. I said, how about the the driver's manager? Maybe I can speak to whoever the driver's manager is. She said, he's his own manager. He owns a bunch of trucks, and they kind of are like on contract for this company. I said, oh, very good. So she said, so I was kind of going back back and forth. I asked her to put herself in my father's shoes, you know, really trying to play on her emotions and see what she could do to help my father. So finally, she says, "I'll, I'll see if I can speak to the driver's manager. Now, a few minutes earlier, she said, he doesn't have a manager. But I said, okay. I said, and if you can call me back, I would so appreciate it because I have to make alternate arrangements if he's not getting oil from you today. I waited two or three hours. She didn't call back. I called the company again, total runaround. Four o'clock, I called again. I got to speak to an after hours representative. I tried to tell him the whole story. He was cutting me off, extremely rude. He said, all I can tell you is I can give it to the driver. I said, so can you confirm that by giving it to a driver this evening, my father will have oil for tonight? He said, no, I cannot confirm that." So he didn't get oil last night. So I just called again this morning, and the lady that spoke to me said, uh, we are going to have a driver come from St. John's to Spaniards Bay to fill your oil tank. It was like I was totally inconveniencing this company. That's how she made me feel this morning.
1: Not good enough. Terrible business.
12: Terrible business terrible business. How many other seniors are not walking out to look at their oil tank when, when they get an oil to make sure the oil was put in there?
1: I think more will now as a result of this call.
12: Well, I certainly hope so, Patty.
1: I'm sorry this happened, Sheila, and hopefully the tank is filled and your father's toasty warm this afternoon. Uh, thank you for doing this.
12: Yeah, I appreciate you listening, and I just wanted to say one other thing. Okay. I want to give a huge shout out to home care workers. My father would never be able to stay in his own home without his home care worker. She is his eyes, his ears, and she's us as a family. She's our eyes and ears. And I cannot tell you how appreciated she is.
1: And I'm sure she appreciates that. Thank you, Sheila. Take good care. Have a good day.
0: You too. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, the Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. And relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this segment on line number three. Say so good morning to the executive director of the John Howard Society. That's Cindy Murphy. Hi, Cindy. You're on the air.
16: Good morning, Paddy.
1: Good morning to you. Let me just set the stage here before we get into the conversation. And it's really quite timely. Someone sent me an email about 15 minutes ago, and here's what it says. Things that are newer than Her Majesty's Penitentiary, we mean the oldest section of. The Lightbulb, 1879. The Eiffel Tower, 1889. The Cinder Block, 1861. The Brooklyn Bridge, 1883. Calgary, 1875. The Bicycle, 1861. The Typewriter, 1867. The Mail Order Catalog, 1872. Dynamite, 1866. And on I mean, that really is kind of a stark reminder just how old and decrepit that facility is.
16: Oh, there's absolutely no question, and interesting enough. I received a similar email, but this came from um, a Newfoundlander who's doing a research fellow at the University of Nottingham, and through his research, he came across this um, in a book that was written. It talks about the conditions at HMP. Um, and so this was, and I'll quote you: so they're incarcerated at the penitentiary in St. John's under conditions which you could possibly compare favorably with those obtaining in England in the time of Dickens. So this is going on for so long, it's just incredible, with no end in sight.
1: And, you know, some people just don't want to hear about it, right? And consequently, there's no political will really to get this done. You can look back at articles in 2014 where the government said, we're going to build a a replacement for whom penitentiary. It's 2023, minimal advancement of that potential on the White Hills, you know, a few million dollars in this budget to keep the project moving. We don't even know whether cost is in line with what government was thinking. But, you know, two deaths since August. We don't know the details surrounding either one at this moment in time. Just go ahead and paint the picture of what's going on in there. You know, lack of visitation, lack of recreation, staff shortages, sickness, death, rodents. I mean, the list goes on and on.
16: Yeah. Well, really what we're talking about is the lack of principles of fundamental justice. There's no question about that in my mind. Um, You know, and I know you're absolutely right when you say there's not a lot of political will to to make the changes that are necessary down there. But I think us as a society have a fundamental right uh, to provide basic human rights. And there's certainly not what's happening on a regular basis, at HMP especially. Um, We know that on a given day, uh, there's staff shortages um, contributing to an already really, really difficult situation um, that's compounding the operations day in and day out. Um, for an example, for us as an organization we're contracted to provide services and programs in HMP, there's many days we don't get in because it's not enough staff to supervise. So we're just one of several organizations um, that are impacted and obviously the impact is felt by the inmates because they're not getting the appropriate programming. We know there's all kinds of issues around medical, folks not getting out for timely access to medical appointments if they have to you know, be seen outside the institution. Um, There is no recreation happening, very seldom, Um, they're not getting regular visits, um, so that means they're cut off from supports, uh, which are critically important to reintegration upon the release. You know, they had this whole issue with the mold in the visiting room, and that was closed for a period of time, and they reverted back to video uh, visits. But we know they weren't happening consistently either, because there weren't staff to escort the inmate down to the visiting room to, to have the video call and that continues today too. So there's no fresh air, so no access to the outside, there's very little recreation, there is no or very little visiting happening. Um they're restricted in terms of their medical access to outside appointments. Um and as we know, we're talking with a complex population to begin with who have, you know, significant issues of mental health and addiction. So with the higher incidence of folks who are suffering from those uh, comorbid disorders, um, then oftentimes their needs are not being met. And they're overcrowded, so I understand there's some double bunking happening. So the counts are up around 180 was the last time I heard. Now that may have fluctuated a little bit over the last week or so. Um, The lockups are pretty full. And so when you've got a high capacity or high number of inmates and fewer staff to supervise them, That means folks are locked in their units or cells more often. So that leads to a situation where there's very little hope. You're being told day in and day out you don't deserve anything better. You're told that you can't, even if you wanted to or are motivated to try and change things, you can't get access to the things that you need to access to be able to try and make those changes. You have very little connection with your supports in the community, which are critically important, as I said, to community reintegration. You know, without those supports, people coming out of prison are disconnected from community and therefore at a higher risk to reoffend. So it's, you know, it's a confluence of events. And, you know, we've been talking about the deteriorating conditions of prison for so long. It's almost, I even sometimes forget to mention it because it's so commonplace. But it's absolutely disgraceful. Um, it's unconscionable. And something has got to change. I just don't know what it is. You know, we've got to begin to talk about alter- alternatives to incarceration, uh, last count I had over 80% of, of the inmates at Her Majesty's Penitentiary and probably other institutions as well are remanded. So these folks are not even sentenced yet. So they they may have been found guilty or they may not even gone to trial yet, but they're languishing down there with little or no service until such time as the courts can, you know, do its, its work. So with a high remand population, um, it, it's just, yeah, there's once again, these folks, like I said, are not even sentenced.
1: And we hear from court officers that somewhere in the neighborhood, again, about 80% of people going through the courts are dealing with addictions or mental health issues. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's got to be a better way. And even, I say this thing all the time, is I know why people don't really care and they turn a deaf, eye, a deaf ear and a blind eye to the penitentiary because the impact of uh, crime on the community. I, I understand the but sentiment, but yeah. the fact of the matter is we are pretty much guaranteeing they come out worse than when yeah. they went in, and what that means for the potential for recidivism and less public safety is absolutely real. So, as much as you, you know, people say you do the crime, you do the time. We're not talking about not doing the time; we're talking about doing the time in conditions, but that lead to some hope of re- rehabilitation as opposed to simply punishment and nothing but. Yeah. So, there's, I think, where the problem lies. Do I we ha-
16: agree? Uh, you know, the whole idea that if you, you know, if, if if you've done the crime, then obviously you should be punished for that, but And I always say, and you've probably heard me say this a million times, the punishment is being deprived of your freedom. So being told you're going to be incarcerated is your punishment. That doesn't mean we have the right to punish them every single day with deplorable and inhumane conditions, right? Um, Because you're absolutely right. Folks are going to return. Just about every single person that enters the penitentiary in Newfoundland is going to come back out to some community. They're not, they're not lifers. They're not doing, you know, extended prison time. Most of those are sent out of the province, and you know, to do their time in the federal institutions. So they will come back to our communities. And so, if the expectation is that by by locking people up that they come out better, then that's just a fallacy in this particular case. Because how can you improve or be better if you're subject to such harsh conditions? You know, it just doesn't even make sense. And do we, we have never even talked about the staff side of that? So you know, staff having to work in those deplorable conditions is is outrageous as well. Yeah,
1: of course it is. Do we have recidivism numbers?
16: No, and they're really hard to find. <laughs> they are so hard to capture those numbers, but we know they're high. We they have to be high. Um, you know, there's yeah, it's it's really in this province it's something we don't do well. You know, from a, from a governmental perspective of tracking. Um, this kind of information, um, we don't have the resources dedicated to it, and so it's really hard to know. But, I mean, antidotally, we know that the numbers are high at any given time, that it, more than likely there's probably 70 or 80 percent of what's incarcerated. And I'd, say it's, I'd venture to say it's even higher than that, have been incarcerated before
1: it stands to reason yeah and you know and how many people do we hear that have been arrested for x y and z and they've broken some of the rules of their probation and i mean it's just getting the same old story day in and day out uh quick chat about supports upon release because we've already talked about the complications of the state of mind that many of the inmates will find themselves in upon release but then the supports in the community housing or otherwise i know folks like yourself and danny mcgettigan and the crowd down at Turnings. everyone doing their level best but looks like we're coming up short that leads once again to issues regarding recidivism.
16: Yeah. There's no question about it. I mean obviously, oops, sorry about that. That's okay. There's um there's clearly there's, you know, there's there's organizations like us who are doing this kind of work and um and you know, but it's become such complex the work has become such com- complexities because we're talking about a housing crisis. So you know we have folks who are difficult to house at the best of times because someone if no if they have an apartment for rent and they realize someone has a criminal history, then they're generally not going to rent to them. But the problem so that was always been the problem, but now it's even more complex because there's absolutely no <laughs> housing available, and so many of our folks are entering into the shelter system, so being released into homelessness, um, you know right off right out of the gate. So so that in itself is a problem. Um, then you have, you know, so we have some housing available, but it's very limited and certainly can't accommodate everyone. And now, of course, you have to keep in mind that not everybody being released from HMP is coming to St. John's or staying in St. John's. No. They're moving out to other communities where housing the housing situation is equally as Yeah, uh,
1: The complexities are absolutely... Uh, evident and I don't know what we're going to do to deal with it but you know a new facility for starters would be helpful you know r- just people think about it you know for folks for instance we're dealing with serious addiction matters and you know standing in the courthouse have been found guilty about to be sentenced and say your honor I'd like to get two years plus a day so I can go somewhere else to get some treatment I mean, <laughs> that always just boggled my mind
16: I know, yeah, and we do hear it, and but of course, it's not always that easy. I mean, no, I, of course not. Two weeks ago, I came back from to that. some spent some time in Spring Spring Hill Institution, which is our federal prison, and where most of Newfoundlanders end up going, uh, certainly um, when they're first. Uh, incarcerated, um but you know there's challenges up there well, it might be cleaner and and you know th- but there's problems with access to programming in the federal system too you know there again it's the whole idea of staffing and not having enough staff and you know so it's not always rosier in the federal system sometimes um folks might think that it is uh, it's certainly not um you know incarceration is never easy and it's not it's not meant to be easy but it you know it's it's a very difficult thing for people to have to endure, especially with the violence and addiction that happens within prison walls too that that's something that's really real but i mean you know we can talk about and complain and 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 do all of that but we've got to begin to put our you know seriously put our our minds to the idea that we've got to try to do something different because we're doing the same thing over and over again and nothing is changing and so we've got to begin to look at how we how the system can better address adult diversion. So how do we divert some folks out of the criminal justice system into a diversion program so they don't even end up having to be incarcerated? You know, some of the lower-risk kind of offenders who likely don't need to be supervised in, or, you know, d- detained in an institution. They can be supervised safely in the community. Um, we need to talk about bail, you know, the whole bail process. Why is there so many people on remand down there? How come they're not able to come out and be supervised in the community until their court dates? Um, you know, so there's a whole bunch of range of things that we could be talking about differently to take down those numbers so it's not feeling the pressure. And, of course, they've got to address the conditions that are matched these penitentiary because I always say, even if they announce a new prison today, which is certainly unlikely, um, we're still talking four or five years out. So what happens in those four or five intervening years there still has you know, we still gotta address the rodents and the filth and the you know, all the other things, the heat in the summertime and the cold in the wintertime and the you know, the lack of staff and all those things have to be because just opening a new prison tomorrow would not solve all those problems. We don't have the staff to fill it.
1: I'm not calling for it to be a pleasant experience upon no. incarceration. It's not supposed to be. Punishment is absolutely part of it. But folks, if you've never been inside the walls, you can't even imagine how bad it is. No. I had an unfettered access uh, tour one time, you know, not when they're locked in their cells for mealtime what have you so it was the prison in action holy smokes I mean, it's it's one thing for it not to be pleasant, and nobody suggests it should be. It's not the Ritz-Carlton, but we are, it's punitive beyond punishment. It really is, it's deplorable. If you've ever seen it or spoke to anyone who's been in there, and we're not talking about the best folks in society, and they deserve to be inside the walls of a prison, but if our collective best interest regarding public safety is that they don't come out worse than they went in, if if that and only that is part of how we think about it, maybe, just maybe, we'll do a little bit better, and consequently, we'll all be a little bit safer.
16: Yeah, it's interesting. Last month, we had the executive directors from John Howard Provincial Offices uh, from right across the country here for meetings. And one of the things that we did is we did tour to HMP as a group and went through. And I got to be honest, I said, you know, these are folks who are well-seasoned and not prisons all over the country. And they said this was the absolute worst, the absolute most deplorable condition. So it's you know it's it's not certainly a localized view of what's happening down there. It's something that's you know, but at some point I really hope that someone's going to be able to pick up a human rights challenge, because I, I really do feel that the fundamental principles of of justice are not here, and this this is a this would warrant a human rights challenge. Um, you know we're not there's there's basic. Um, what we call Mandela Rules, which are universal rules that are supposed to be applied to the basic um, tenets of incarceration and the conditions, and we're nowhere near. We're meeting those. We're definitely below those. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So if somebody would ever pick up, you know, have the legal ability to pick up that challenge, I think that would be would be something. But I don't know if that'll ever happen. I don't know
1: either. But I appreciate the time this morning, Cindy. Thanks for this. Thanks, Teddy. Take care. Bye bye. Cindy Bye-bye. Murphy from the John Howard Society. Let's take a break. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go before the news line two. Brian. You're on the air. Hello. Hello. How you doing, Betty? I'm doing okay. How you
17: doing? Good. Not too bad. Not too bad. I just wanted to inform the people out there that they can go to a thing called uh, Canadian's uh, Citizen Inquiry uh, that have had this uh, jab and they're having reactions to it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like this poor woman that I'm living with, uh, she's been having bad reactions ever since she had her second jab. And, uh, I I just want people to know that there's a a thing out there called the Citizens Inquiry, uh, you know, or something like that, right?
1: I I can tell you exactly what it is. So the website is nationalcitizensinquiry.ca. Yes,
17: yes, exactly. And, uh, Okay. Now, I I don't know if that's been out there. I just wanted to put it out there because I'm seeing this woman deteriorate uh, in front of my eyes. And uh, it just makes me sick. And uh, she just can't seem to get no help, Patty. And, uh, you know, like I'm hoping that, like, it's all neurological. I'm sure it's neurological or she's got clots uh, that are just not uh, new, you know. Uh, New to the body? A doctor will be able to
1: establish whether or not there's blood clots.
17: Well, sorry?
1: A doctor will be able to establish whether or not there's blood clots in any part of the body.
17: Well, her doctor for the last year has been giving her all kinds of everything but the clot checks. So that's what I'm concerned about. You know, like, why are they not pinpointing the problem? You know, like, uh, I just wish, I, I wish they'd just say, here, let's go in, let's do a you know, same like with a pregnant woman, they put that thing on there and... Uh, uh, ultrasound? Uh, ultrasound, thank you. No problem. And uh, and they can do that to her arm or leg because this woman suffers every night. I, I have to watch this woman in pain every night and day. And we uh, just can't seem to get no help. And uh, I'm getting a little bit ticked off here. You know, like I, I'm being nice. I'm kind. <laughs> you know, but... Uh, just nobody seems to want to dig down into what's going on. Like they're, like, you know, like, uh, they're giving her spine. Oh yeah. Take a spine test and this and that, which is fine, which is good. And she's getting the CT scans and all that stuff. Right. And, uh, I, I'm just, I'm just trying to look over this woman here. She's, uh, she's really hurting bad. And, uh, <laughs> just a year ago she was out walking her dogs out running them for god's sake man you know and uh, now she's uh, i i lift her in and out of bed to pee you know like practically like it's just terrible you know, I, I just it sounds don't.
1: terrible. I hope she gets whatever medical testing and treatment required to see if she can't get back on track. And if folks are so inclined to check out that website, it, it's an easy Google if you didn't have a chance to jot it down, just nationalcitizensinquiry.ca. Uh, I appreciate the time, Brian. I wish you and the woman well. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Take good care. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're going to be saying good morning to the CPC House Leader uh, in Parliament. Of course, that's Andrew Sheer And Jody Walls in the queue as well to talk about Marine Drive. Don't go away.
0: Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to IrishNL at VOCM.com or submit them online at VOCM.com.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. good morning to the PC member for Cape St. Francis. That's Jody Wall. Jody, you're on the air.
18: Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. No problem. Patty, I wanted to call in this morning with a district issue, uh, particularly in, in the town of Logabe Middle Cove, Outer Cove, and on Marine Drive. So I'm sure you're aware and maybe some of your listeners are aware with respect to the erosion uh, that's affecting the provincial road in in Milkov of Outer Cove and uh, there's been many many pictures on social media that have been shared with respect to the erosion and uh, that's been going on for quite some time so um, the department has has deemed this area safe however they've put numerous concrete barricades in that area to keep the motoring public safe and, and away from uh, from the drop we even have the guide rails in that area, the posts are hanging mid-air. So the, the total shoulder of the ro- of the road is gone. Uh, the the degree of erosion is, is, is severe in that area. And uh, we've brought that to government's attention over the last number of years, for the last two years for sure, uh, since I've been in office. And I do know that Mayor uh, Hickey and his council in Lugabay-Milkoe-Outer Cove have strongly advocated for this road work to be, to be completed. Um, now, to government's credit, I'll give credit where credit is due. Uh, it was announced on the Uh, roads plan for this this past year uh, that it was approved the work would be done however there's no been no work done on the site as of yet so that's still a concern with respect to the the safety of the motoring public on marine drive and it's heavily it's heavily traveled this portion is from lower road to what we call the lookout i'm sure you're familiar with it
1: i am and i've seen the pictures too you know it doesn't necessarily look safe
18: no, and and I feel the same. Uh, I know the mayor and his council feel the same. That's why we're strongly advocating for this road uh, to be remediated. So the road has to be uh, literally has to be moved in uh, further inland uh, to to get away from the level of erosion. So I'm hoping that's going to to take part uh, to start next year. Patty, the problem we had this week in the last number of days, the provincial government employees, the the plow operators who are responsible for uh, snow clearing operations on Marine Drive. Uh, they have now refused to work. They have refused to work on that portion of Marine Drive, as I said, from Lower Road to the lookout area because they feel in their workplace that it's not safe. So they have refused to work. Government has listened to them. And as a uh, reaction to this, government has now hired an external contractor. They've hired an external contractor to perform the snow-clearing operations for uh, snow-clearing and ice control on that portion of Marine Drive. Because the the staff who are responsible for that don't feel safe, and I, I fully understand and appreciate what you know the concern that they have and why they feel unsafe in their workplace. Their their machine that they operate in that's their office. They, that's where they work. Uh, this particular machine, from what I've been told, is it weighs approximately fifty eight thousand pounds, and that's without a load of salt and sand aboard. So when you're working, as we all know, when they're out. It's less than ideal conditions. Has been proven over the last number of days, and they're in this in the, in their workplace, and they feel unsafe on that portion of Lower Road. They're responsible for the rest of, of Marine Drive, as I said, from Lower Road to the lookout. They 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 have refused to work in that particular area, which is, as far to best of my knowledge, uh, six or seven hundred meters. So the rest of Marine Drive and the rest of of, of Route 20 in my district, of course, the Snowflake operators are, are responsible for, and they're doing a good work on that, and we thank them for that. However, this portion of Marine Drive, they deem is not safe. Government says it's safe for uh, the travelling public. As I said, there are numerous large concrete barricades there, right, and coming out into the travelling surface on the roadway. As I said, uh, Minister. Uh, Mayor Hickey and his council strongly advocate for this. I am as well. I brought it up to the former minister and to the current minister. And as I said, it's on the roads plan to be done. However, now we have another issue with the staff in that area who are saying it's unsafe to work. And that's causing great concern to me. It's causing concern to the mayor and council of the area and to the residents who who live in that area, who travel over that, that portion of marine drive on a regular basis. So I'm looking for the minister to provide some clarity on this as to what's going to happen next if it's unsafe for provincial government employees to, to work on yet we have an external contractor hired by the government to perform the snow clearing in this particular portion of marine drive and uh, it's just not sitting well with me patty
1: what needs to be done
18: the road needs to be remediated it has to be moved inland so it requires expropriation of land
1: that's what i was wondering do we actually talk about moving the road
18: Yes, exactly so. Okay. moving it away from from the cliff from the shoreline, um, as, as you said as you said earlier the the social media pictures clearly depict uh, the level of of erosion in that area um, to the point where the barricades are now into the driving area on the on the road surface, and I can understand why why the staff don't feel comfortable and feel it's unsafe. The road needs to be moved inland. So that requires expropriation of the road, and then, of course, creating a, a new roadway for that particular section. As I said, Patty, I believe it's between six and seven hundred metres.
1: I appreciate the time and the concern, Jody. I've seen the pictures and the issue is absolutely well documented and real. Thanks for the call.
18: I appreciate that, and I'm hoping that the minister will call in to uh, to give some clarity on this and provide some uh, some information uh, to to myself, of course, to the staff in the area, and to the uh, to the mayor and council. Thanks, Jody. Thank you, Patty. Have a great day. You
1: too. Bye-bye. Bye. Jody Wald, PC member for Cape St. Francis. So let's go to line number two. Michael, you're on the air. Uh, g-
19: uh, good morning, Paddy. Just a couple of thoughts here. Uh, uh, first of all, regarding the war memorial, uh, I think it's very important uh, that we pay due honour and respect to all our dead. Okay? Having said that, uh, there, there's an old saying, if it's not broke, don't fix it. You know, and I think we have a situation here with the war memorial. The right hand doesn't know what the left is doing. Okay, we have the uh, the uh, grave of the unknown soldier uh, type of thing like that. Uh, one was assumed that that was part of the larger contract. Uh, apparently not. Uh, I just give you another example of things that are. Uh, we had the forest ranger monument out in front of colonial building. Uh, you know, dismantled, put round the back on a wooden pedestal. Uh, you know, so there's six million dollars being spent on the war memorial. Now, if your grandfather or my grandfather died in the war, it would be nice to go down there and see your name there, wouldn't it? Any war memorial in the UK or Ireland or most, of the, you know, the Vietnam uh, war memorial, you have your name on it. So, I mean, I, I like to think that all soldiers are known soldiers. The names. So six million dollars going to be spent, and there will not be a single name on the war memorial except perhaps King Charles or the whatever uh, premier we have at this uh, time next year, you know. And uh, I think it's regrettable, you know, that uh, things have gone the way they have. I'm not quite sure if you know uh, how business people feel on Water Street and Duckworth Street. There's something gone amiss.
1: I think there was a required refurbishment uh, for that war memorial. I don't know to the extent with which it's uh, been undertaken. I do think it's a, a cool idea to have a tomb of the unknown soldier, and there's ongoing concern there. I never gave any thought to a wall memorializing those lost in the war. You know, I've been to the Vietnam uh, War Memorial, and it's really quite something. Uh, it's pretty powerful uh, visit. So I hadn't even considered that to be the case. You know, I don't know where a wall could be down there, maybe on the retaining wall itself, but of course, you'd have to jam and haul a whole lot of names in that particular piece of wall, and I think you'd have to appropriately well, you, you put a piece of marble there.
19: Memorial. I mean, we're going to have a memorial, and we're going to have no name on it other than King Charles or perhaps the Premier. Uh, fair enough. Understood. You know, so I think we have to be very careful. Six million dollars been sent, and and I feel I have a lot of sympathy for the gentleman. I think it's a, you know good idea. The gentleman you know that was involved in getting the granite. Uh, we'll probably end up getting somewhere something from. Uh, Czechoslovakia or Hungary, it costs maybe 10 times as much.
1: Yeah, we're going to invite the minister on. I mean, there's a long list of issues to broach with uh, John Abbott, so we're going to have him on as soon as possible.
19: Yeah, I, and I, I think, you know, people in the province should realise there will not be one single name on that war memorial, and we're spending $6 million. And if I had my grandfather involved in World War I, I would, would feel very upset about that.
1: It's a fair point. I hadn't considered it. Uh, anything else this morning, Michael? No,
19: that's fine, because I know you get got other people who want to get on the line.
1: It's all good. I appreciate care. the call. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. All right, quickly before we get to the break, a couple of quick PSAs pepper into the show. So I got an email from one of the organizers of Neighbors in Need, Good People. Her name is Ashley. She's hosting a stuff the Boss event this Sunday afternoon at Conception Bay uh, from 12 noon to uh, 5 p.m. at Sean's Muffler and Brake Shop. They still have so many families that need to get covered. They're in desperate need of gift cards for teenagers, whether it be Mary Browns or Subway or Walmart or grocery cards. Monetary donations will all also be accepted, as well as gifts for girls or boys. Any help is appreciated. So, Sean's Muffer in Conception Bay South, uh, Sunday from 12 noon to 5 p.m. One more, cancellation of a concert. That's unfortunate. So tonight's concert with uh, Ian Foster and Nancy Hines, that was going to be at the Wesley United Church. That, unfortunately has been canceled. For those of you who purchased tickets through the church office, the office will be open on Monday. Please call to arrange for refunds on your tickets. The number at Wesley uh, United is 579-3682. We're taking our final break of the morning and the week. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Where would you like me to go here now, David, as we try to get through these uh, calls? Line number six. Is that a six? (laughs) Okay. Let's go to line number six. Uh, Gerald, you're on the air.
20: Uh, Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. My pleasure. Gerald uh, Guy, Arnold's Cove, uh, as I've called to you before, uh, uh, bus driver here at a twice-centre in the Arnold's Cove run and into the town of Come Has Chance. As you know, Paddy, uh, I know you can relate to it. they took away the 1.6-kilometre, four in the town of Arnold's Cove. There are students now being picked up and dropped off at the school and at their uh, bus stops. But having said that, uh, a lot of the drivers, uh, fe- female and male, of course, in the town are not aware Is new to the town of Arnold's Cove that uh, uh, the bus is a new thing. Why, I do not know. They are not. And this is a message that has a bus driver and on behalf of the other three bus drivers in the town at a Tricentia Academy and, of course, across the island, province-wide, Why aren't you getting the message that when we as bus drivers are pulling up, our lights are flashing amber, they're flashing red, and therefore stop means stop until the way is clear. Especially students, your future generation in all areas where there's school. So I just want to get it out there over the way to do so. Again, please. Please, when you see a school bus moving, please be aware and stop. I've had three in the past five days overtake me, and I can assure you the lights were all flashing and things are working. So please, in the town of Arnold's Golden, come my drop-off pick-up location, I am from here on in going to be aware of your license plate number. I know pretty much 90% of the people in both towns. So, beware, obey the signs, please and the flashing lights. That's just one topic, I have a couple more quickly.
1: A couple of quick ones, uh, a couple more calls on before the week runs out, yeah. go ahead.
20: Okay, the quick one is, I heard earlier there that uh, uh, biker John Barrett was on from the town of school yep. to him and his riders, that they're doing well on this fundraising thing please support them they're doing a wonderful thing and the other one thing is another topic just quickly for eastern management who is collecting the garbage around disposable things recyclables in the town of arnold school and surrounding area please have your small trucks cover their garbage waste they're transporting it to the bigger truck that's collecting within the towns it's blowing all off those trucks into our ditches really the town shouldn't have to deal with it we shouldn't have to deal with this It's hard enough as it is at a regular day please stop this eastern management your workers are making our town terrible it's blowing off into the ditches everywhere all of those trucks is trying to keep up with the big truck thank you Petty. have a great
1: day merry christmas to you and yours and your listeners the same to you thanks gerald Bye bye. Right. Bye bye. All right. Let's keep going here. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Jonathan Richler. You're on the air. How are you, Paddy? I'm doing okay, sir. Hagg Sameach. Hog Sameach. Hagg Hanukkah Sameach. Thank you very much. Um,
21: for all of your listeners, Hagg Sameach is like a generic happy holiday. So it's it's awesome that that you're uh, on tune on point with that. And then you just sort of insert the holiday uh, of the moment. So you could say Chag Hanukkah Simei, you could say Chag Passover, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's like, put it down in your notebook, folks. It's a real easy one to uh, once you get your all done, you can really blast out the old uh, Hebrew and impress your friends. Um, <laughs> it's Hanukkah. It's uh, Tonight will be the second night of Hanukkah. I'm not sure if anyone was on the show yesterday um, to wish everyone a happy Hanukkah. We have a very Small uh, Jewish population in the province of Newfoundland Labrador, but it's quite strong across uh, the country. And uh, it's important to recognize uh, and celebrate the Festival of Lights, despite um, the lousy circumstances around the world in terms of geopolitics. It is good every now and then just to take a breath and. Um, cook some food um, that is coated in oil. So I'm not going to challenge you to read some scripture today, Patty. I'm just going to challenge you over the weekend (laughs) to uh, cook something in oil, whether it be french fries or, oh gosh, I don't know, um, make yourself a beautiful olive oil cake. Just do it and um, make sure that you think about the fact that we are so connected over thousands of years, all of us together. and um, It's just great to be able to take a moment during december to be with friends and
5: family uh,
1: i'm glad you said you know take a break from some of the real contentious geopolitical issues and what we see with regarding protests and what have you across the the country because uh, come eleven fifty six and 20 seconds on a friday i don't think mm-hmm. i got it in me to be honest but i am using yeah. olive oil tonight in preparation for a sauce for our supper so that's where i'll begin
21: beautiful that's that's uh, all we can ask for and yeah uh, it's Friday. So let's let's take a breath. Hug your neighbor and um, that's it brother. Happy Hanukkah. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. We'll call and uh, embrace each other as the as the days progress, but we're all in this together. It's a cold month, so give lots of warm hugs.
1: Let me give it one more shot. Ha Hanukkah Sameach.
3: Yeah,
1: you got it brother. Not bad.
3: And Shabbat Shalom.
1: Yeah, good man. Thank you, Jonathan. <laughs> happy Hanukkah sure, buddy. Man. All right. Bye bye. All right, final word this morning goes to line number one. Good morning, Tina Davies. You're on the air.
22: Good morning, Tiger. How are you?
1: Doing okay, thanks. How about you?
22: <laughs> I'm fine, thanks. I'm just calling to remind everyone of the our nineteenth annual candlelight vigil. It's uh, for those who've lost someone to suicide. It's this Sunday at Saint Mark's Anglican Church on Logie Bay Road at three PM. And it is a non- Denominational service, so Buddhists, Christians, Jews, everyone welcome.
1: Yeah, we had Kim Kelly on for an extensive conversation uh, about the upcoming vigil. And hopefully the conversations that you and I and Kim and I have on air are helpful when we talk about the topic honestly and openly. And hopefully that will encourage more people who have lost a loved one uh, by suicide to come to the vigil, to be open, to speak to people who have a a life experience similar to theirs. So we hope these conversations help. It's hard to measure whether or not they do, but we sure hope they are.
22: They do. They they really do. Uh, um, speaking from experience, as you know, uh, actually tomorrow will be 28 years since Richard, my son, took his life. And that's 28 years of really crappy Decembers. Uh, I know Christmas is difficult for a lot of people. Um, and um, But this is just one little thing that can perhaps bring some comfort to those who have lost someone to suicide? Um, it never goes away. We don't get over this, but we do get through it.
1: You know, I, I do know. Uh, well, I don't know, but I, I try to understand. So hopefully, people will take this opportunity. I know, that, you know, there will be some singing and there will be a slideshow, and I think the deadline is passed to have your loved ones' photo uh, uh, submitted because. The, Kim also asked people not to submit a new one because, you know, a bunch of volunteers and the time and effort and the cumbersome issues with trying to swap photos out. So give us the time and the details. Anything else you'd like to say in the next 20 seconds before I unfortunately run out of time?
22: Sure. Uh, St. Mark's Anglican Church this Sunday, the 10th, at 3 p.m. Also, it will be live streaming on Facebook. And uh, if you can't make it, you can watch it on Facebook, and they will have it up on St. Mark's Anglican Church Facebook page afterwards also so um, you can at least watch it if you can't make it during the day, whatever. I encourage everybody to come and enjoy a little tiny bit of comfort and um, to be with those who understand. And uh, have a Merry Christmas, Patty. I probably won't speak to you before then, to you and your family.
1: I appreciate that. I wish you a Merry Christmas, and I hope you and all others who attend the event enjoy it as well. Thank you, Tina.
22: Thanks, Patty.
1: You're welcome. Love you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. We are indeed out of time, but we will pick up this conversation again on Monday morning. Pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. We'll talk Monday. Bye-bye.